All right, everybody, welcome to the Angry Sun Zone. Uh, if you've been following us for the past couple episodes, we are now in the top five of our top 15 all-time favorite games. Uh, just a reminder, these are our favorite games. They're not the best games. They're not the most well-crafted or influential games. They're our personal favorites, whatever that means to us. And we went through the past... Uh, the last 10 in the past two episodes, so check those out if you haven't already. Uh, and then we'll get into it. I'm Alex. I'm Sean. And I'm Sato. And get ready for the top five favorite games on this podcast. All right. I'll, I'll start. Um, now, if, if you've been listening to the past few episodes, you've noticed that, you may have noticed that a lot of my, a lot of the games I've put on here are Pretty slow-paced strategy games for the most part, JRPGs and the such. That all changes now, because my number five is Battlefield Bad Company 2. Oh, hell yeah! <laughs> yeah, so, like, like a lot of people, I had a shooter phase. You know, I, I had an Xbox 360, that's what you played on Xbox 360 with shooters. Or PC. <laughs> I, I'm more of a PC shooter myself. Yeah, yeah. Um, but Battlefield Bad Company 2 is, like, apart from Smash, the most fun I've ever had in a multiplayer environment. I absolutely love this game, and it does so many things right, where other Battlefield games, I think, stumble a little bit. Yeah, I think, for me, Bad Company 2 had... The, it was it was one of the most it was one of the most fast paced battlefield games. Yeah, and that I think that yeah. worked to its favor a ton because the main mode in Battlefield is the conquest mode or conquest. Whatever. Yeah, the, I think it's called the, conquest. Something like that. Yep. I think they conquest. changed. They might change the name yeah. in different games, but the concept yeah. is just that there's control points. You hold the points, and that affects uh, respawn rates. And uh, these, this, there's a ticket system. Yeah, that, where, and the tickets are both points and respawns. Yeah, if you use a, if you if you respawn on the map, you use up one of your team's tickets, and the team that has the controls the most control points slowly depletes the enemy's tickets, and also the control points act as your spawn points. That and um, the whatever squad you're in. Yeah, so it's so both map control and uh, good KD ratios are important for uh, winning on uh, yeah. uh, in the team team versus team setup of conquest mode. Mm-hmm. Synopsis: Your team's collective life is tickets to the gun show. Don't run out of tickets, guys. <laughs> and so it's it's a great concept for players like me who might not be the best uh, shooter players, like. I, I can get a, deep, a pretty good amount of kills, but I'll also get a ton of deaths because I run around a lot. So, but I'm also, like, I have really good uh, perception when it comes to map control. So this this mode is perfect for a player like me to do well in. And if you're doing well, chances are you're having fun. Um, and one of the big concepts in the Battlefield games, apart from this, is the vehicles. It's always been... Uh, vehicle-based shooter. Uh, so you got you know tanks, jeeps, little like ATVs, 
The fucking helicopters. <laughs> yeah, the helicopters, yeah. Some of the later games have jets. Mm-hmm. Uh, Bad Company 2 has jets in one level. Uh, oh, did it? Yeah, in the really long desert level with the bro- like the half a ship shipping container thing in the middle of it. Oh, for some reason oh, I was... Yeah. <laughs> you know what? I thought that was a Bad Company... I thought that was a Battlefield 3 map. <laughs> and all that, that. Anyway. Yeah, and the thing about... A lot of Battlefield games is that some of the maps uh, focus on the vehicles a bit too much, where you pretty much have to use the vehicles to do anything. Yeah, I like the feel... control points are just too far apart to work on foot. Yeah, I feel like some of the more recent Battlefield games really fall into that trap, uh, especially Battle- Battlefield Three. Battlefield Three, hundred percent. Like I switched over to playing Team Deathmatch exclusively. Yeah, Battlefield Three was just it was impossible. The vehicles were not only necessary, but also kind of overpowered to the point where being on foot wasn't a valuable option if you were even remotely in the open. Yeah, and I think I think the different classes had a Whereas bit, some of the... I think... Yeah, Bad Company 2, on the other hand, had a great balance between yeah. where being in a vehicle was totally a viable strategy and, in fact, like usually necessary to, uh, to have at least some vehicles involved... Uh, but it wasn't like make or break, like everyone mm-hmm. has to be in a vehicle or they're dead. Yeah, like a lot of the maps were had a fair amount of buildings or a fair amount of like rocks and shit. Yeah, although that you can hide behind. But speaking yes, of buildings, exactly. The thing I really loved about Bad Company 2 was the destruction and the fact oh, that yeah. you can completely level a, a building down to like the. The floors, the like, some beams on the sides, and the stairs. Everything else could be destroyed. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah, and especially when a game went long, it really felt like the battle was dragging on as yeah. the the map itself is slowly destroyed. Yeah, like holding one of the center control points at the start of the game is completely different than trying to hold it at the end of the game. So the the matches felt incredibly dynamic in that way, and the. The last thing about the maps that were great is that they were also uh, a decent amount smaller. I think that is chalked up to the fact that Bad Company was meant to be a console Battlefield game more than a PC one. Uh, so there was like there was a lower player count. Yeah, yeah. I think having the more tightly uh, tightly constrained maps actually helped a lot, though. Mm-hmm. It did. Yeah, and I also liked the expansion pack for it, uh, Bad Company Two Vietnam. That was oh, actually yeah. it was quite a lot of fun. I the 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 different uh, dynamic of it compared to the first one where you'd be oh, there'd be a lot of hiding in the bushes and some really funny kills where you know uh, I don't think I ever played that. Yeah, yeah, it was pretty good. It, it kind of it was it extended the formula a bit more. It was I would say a bit more infantry based on most yeah. of the maps than vehicle. Even yeah, it was skewed more towards being on foot. Which makes sense, because in the context of the Vietnam War, it's a lot more like slogging through marsh. Yeah. Now, did you guys also play the single-player campaign? So, I played a little bit of it, but as soon as I played... Like, I loved the first Bad Company's campaign. I thought it had a really, like, fun tone in a way that a lot of shooters were way too self-serious back Mm -hmm. then. Um, But with Bad Company 2, I played a few... 
levels of the campaign, and, and then started playing the multiplayer, and as soon as I did that, like, I couldn't stop. <laughs> oh, yeah. yeah oh, I yeah. played the campaign, but it, the campaign in Bad Company 2 was not what made that game great. I agree. It was a I fairly agree. average uh, shooter campaign, I felt. Oh, and then there's the other thing we haven't talked about yet, which was the rush mode, mm-hmm. which I thought was an incredible mode. I think they still have kept it around in some of the later Battlefield installments. I haven't played, like, the last three Battlefield games. Well, I know Battlefield 3 technically had a rush mode, but it was terrible because the maps did not work for rush at all. The maps in Bad Company 2 were... uh, A lot of them were actually designed for rush, specifically. Uh, So, for those who aren't aware, rush mode as opposed to uh, the standard Conquest mode, I believe it still had tickets. But it did. the difference mainly was that the control points were initially held by one team, uh, sort of the defending team, and the other team had no... Uh, started with maybe one point just to spawn at. Yeah. And their goal is to... Uh, the, the attacking team's goal is to take both point or uh, however many points. Usually there's two or three. Mm-hmm. Uh, and their goal is to take over all the points on the map. The defender's goal is to just defend them. And uh, the defenders win by basically just holding out out until the attackers run out of tickets, and then the attackers win by taking all the points on the map. And it was a very, very fun mode, I thought. like... Especially because the maps themselves were designed to yeah, kind like, of facilitate it in such a way where the uh, it was actually a lot of them were surprisingly balanced, yeah. where both the attackers and defenders had a good chance of winning, even with the asymmetry. Mm-hmm. And the like, you couldn't like sneak back to like the very back point of your the defenders. You had to take the points sequentially. Yeah. So that 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 um, also had the knock on effect of making like the individual uh, encounters feel bigger because there were more people uh, at, like, one point on the map. Whereas yeah. in the Conquest mode, it's, like, a number of tiny little skirmishes happening all over the map for map control and just, like, people running into other people in buildings. Yeah. Yeah, Rush... So, like, di- different feel, but... Rush definitely made the whole thing feel a lot more... Uh, dynamic, a bit chaotic at times, uh, because the whole ma- the, like the whole team is just kind of bearing down on this one point. But then still, people are trying to do things like kind of get Sweet behind ground, yeah. and you know do a pincer strike or it really um, lived up to its name. Bring a like a, especially funny because if the point is being rushed by a bunch of people, just completely raining down, you know, grenades. And tank fire onto the point is uh, a viable strategy, especially for the attackers, since the defenders tend to cluster around mm-hmm. it. But then also, even the defenders can try to blow it up. Yeah, the defenders like oftentimes have like fortifications, like mounted guns and shit. Like I remember the the winter, the snow level, where there were these guns that were like so difficult to snipe people off of, like head on. Yeah. So yeah. I would I would always make it make it a point to try and sneak around. Oh, like that, remember, that's what I would do every single match. Oh yeah, the snow level. That was one of my favorites. And yes. I remember this one oh, there was this one time, this one round where I was in the tank I was in a tank and I had a I had a partner in the tank 
Um, I'm trying to remember. Maybe one partner drove and the other partner in the tank used the main gun. I can't remember. I think that might have been how it was set up. Yeah. And I think I was in the gun. He was driving. But we just completely dominated by... uh, We were on attack. And I think I went 27-1 or something (laughs) stupid in that match. Um, Because we just had such a good... Yeah. We just had such a good, like... uh, vantage point on this hill to like rain down just slowly destroy all of the control point buildings and just slowly creep up <laughs> a very sort of attrition attrition warfare kind of thing yeah but very fun awesome truly the game of a decade ago <laughs> yep a game that it's the only game on this list that I can't go back and play. <laughs> That's the really unfortunate thing about online multiplayer is that it really depends on having the the community there. Like it, it's it's so where some games are like are like a point in time for completely different reasons. Where this game is a point in time because I mean it's a Battlefield's an EA game. I have zero confidence that the servers are still up for that. <laughs> yeah. Well, and a lot of people have moved on to the app further yeah, into like, the series. Yeah, and with, with shooters especially, like, or pretty much any competitive multiplayer game, the people that are still playing a competitive multiplayer game online ten years later, you don't want to play against those people. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no. I've, I've tried playing fighting games, like, even, like, two years after they were released online, and it's not, it's not a time. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and I, I really just... Uh, and I think the, maybe the, the most recent Battlefield game or two I haven't played, but they really don't look quite... They Bad, Bad Company 2 had, I think, just the perfect mix uh, between, you know, on-foot gunplay and uh, vehicle play. Uh, and the classes were super balanced. And the classes, well. the classes were really dynamic, really balanced. They had great progression trees. Uh, and it, just everything in the more recent ones... Doesn't look quite as good. Uh, yeah, honorable mention goes to twenty Battlefield twenty one forty two though. Uh, yeah, that was also Funny a really you good one. That. All right. Well, let's. Uh, it sounds like we might have to move on to the next game. Yeah. <laughs> All right. So I'll uh, I'll go next. So my my number five my number five uh, game is Sonic the Hedgehog two. Oh, on man. the Sega Genesis. And I loved the Sega Genesis Sonic games. Uh, I picked... I, I, I decided to go... It was a really tough toss-up to pick Sonic the Hedgehog 2 or Sonic the Hedgehog 3. Obviously, and then there's N Knuckles. <laughs> uh, which, for those of you who don't know... So, the Sega Genesis was a cartridge-based system. And there was a, another game, Sonic and Knuckles... And it was this really silly thing where you could actually plug Sonic and Knuckles in and then plug another Sonic game in to Sonic and Knuckles. So now you've got, like, Sonic 3 and Knuckles. And so you could just play Knuckles in this other game. I think you might even be even been able to do it with Sonic 2 to get Sonic 2 and Knuckles. Anyway, between, between those, all the various Sonic uh, the Hedgehog games on the Genesis, Sonic 2 was my favorite, mostly just... For a few of my favorite zones, zones like, uh, you know, Chemical Plant Zone, uh, 
I, I love the I love the music in the Sonic games. It's got this really great. It's got this re- really great beats. Uh, there's also Casino Night Zone in Sonic Two, uh, which is infamous for having a a, a, a sort of convoluted uh, casino puzzle. It's not even really a puzzle. It's just the level is very busy. And it's yes. easy to get yeah. confused and turned around. And, uh, yeah, but it's, it's really good. And, uh, you know, other, other, other zones like Metropolis Zone, Oil Ocean, Mystic Cave, like super cool, super fun. Um, all the Sega Genesis Sonic games are, are great. Uh, I almost picked Sonic 3 solely for Hydrocity Zone because that music in Hydrocity Zone is total banger. Uh, but I love the Sonic Genesis, the Genesis Sonic games, because they've got this really nice feel of a platformer that uh, can be extremely fast, but you really have to know the game. Yeah. I mean, in theory, I think you can, like a lot of other classic platformers, if you are really well-versed in the levels, you can power through the game and I don't know, like an hour or something. Yeah. Uh, especially Sonic games, because you can rip through a level in like 30 seconds or a minute if you really know the level. But it takes a lot of practice to kind of get to that point. And before that, you're really just sort of, it's, it's a bit slower. You're a bit, you're taking it slow and, and learning the level, learning the paths. A lot of Sonic levels have this sort of, there's like a fast path, a puzzle path, and kind of a normal path, and you have to know the way through the level, um, which gives you this great sense of progression, even as you're replaying the levels, uh, because as you get better and better than them, at, at, at better and better at them, you get faster and faster running through it, uh, which is just such a great feeling, uh, especially in a really solid platformer. Um, so, I love the Sonic Genesis, the Genesis Sonic games. They're really one of the one of the games that uh, that I I I have such fond memories of. So, yeah. even had a username based off of them for a I, while. I do. Yeah. I mean, I still do on some services. <laughs> yeah, I I never really got into the Sonic games, but I'm going to put that down to I only knew one person who had a Genesis as a as a kid. And it wasn't, you know, it wasn't me. So <laughs> whenever we, I went over to their house and we played Sonic, I had to play as Tails. And playing <laughs> playing two-player in that game is not a good experience. Uh, especially, especially when you haven't played much Sonic. Whereas the, they just, like, ran ahead in the level crazy fast, and I'm just, like, lagging behind. I have no idea what I'm doing. Oh, yeah. Yeah, the two-player is... Uh, the two-player is cool, but it definitely a bit strange if you're playing with someone who really knows the game, and then it just sort of, like, forces... Yeah, you just get you left just behind. For, you and just get forced off the fucking screen. It requires yeah. not only for both of you to know the game at the same level, but also to have a sense of teamwork that you're, uh, that you're both doing things together and not pushing ahead. Yeah, uh, but, yeah but six-year-olds don't have that. No. <laughs> Yeah, for me, I played a lot of Genesis games. I would used to go over to my uh, cousin's place and play games like Toe Jam and Earl, or uh, this helicopter game that I can remember but can't seem to remember the name of. 
but the Sonic series definitely had a special place in our hearts. Sonic the Hedgehog 2. Um, I remember we kept on pushing further and further to beat it. I think it was a good year before we were able to do it in, in one <laughs> session sitting down together, which usually resulted in it going from daylight to nighttime by the time that we were finished. So, yeah, Sonic Sonic's great, uh, and uh, um, he, he gets a special cameo in the games we do play, like Smash Bros. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and it's funny, too, because uh, I love platformers. I've played so many platformers, and this is actually the first platformer on my list so far. But it's really one of the ones that made me, that got me to fall in love with the, the genre of platforming video games. Nice. All right, my number five goes back to uh, Santa's preferences there. My number five is Battlefield 2142. And uh, this game definitely is way, way up there now. I think it actually was the game that came out just before Bad Company 2, if I remember correctly. It was definitely before. Yeah. It might have even been before Bad Company 1. Yeah. Because it was a PC game. So the conceit of 2142 is that it had a pretty large player count. I think it might have been 64 Yeah, players. 32 aside. And uh, it had um, vast epic maps to uh, match its giant player count. Um, and similar to the other game, the main uh, mode of this was uh, Conquest mode. Now, there was another cool conceit to it was the Titans. And I love Titan mode so much that that's the, the, the thing that made this Battlefield game rise to the very top of my Battlefield list and be uh, an S-tier shooter game. And that is because in Titan mode, uh, essentially you have a giant floating fortress, one per side, um, and uh, you can choose to uh, revive or start each new life uh, in this giant floating fortress. Uh, which has a lot of different ways to get you around the map quickly. So you can uh, hop into one of their uh, drop pods, like an escape pod uh, Star Wars style, and it'll shoot you out of the bottom, and you can steer it towards uh, the ground. Now, as the game first came out, there was this hilarious bug where if you whipped your mouse one way or the other, the pod would start rotating, and like some sort of rotato, you know, some sort of tornado of doom you would all of a sudden be able to control yourself as you're flying through the map in an invulnerable pod of death and you, you are the missile <laughs> if you got good enough you could actually land directly on poor enemies and they I, would just i am become missile destroyer <laughs> yes. of enemies it was it was quite entertaining uh and so with the vehicles, the vehicles were also cool because besides this giant floating fortress, you could actually fly, transport, and attack helicopters off of them. But these were jet helicopters. Uh, and on the ground, you also had uh, mechs and hover tanks and uh, slow-moving ground fortresses, uh, fast-moving vehicles and hover and hover Humvees. Um, one of my favorite... Uh, one of my most favorite things to do, though, was uh, to fly around in the hover jet, and I had sunk probably hundreds of hours into learning how to not instantly die after hopping in one of these because the controls were very sensitive. <laughs> but, classic, uh, classic Battlefield, the well, best, the best air vehicle has tremendously difficult controls. <clears throat> I uh, I g- got to be known as Helicopter Dick, which. Uh, 
was a funny nickname because my strategy was to drop down in the middle of an enemy squad with my helicopter, hovering approximately a foot above the ground, and then jerk my mouse off to the right or left so that I would swing my helicopter blade, the, the, the tail rotor of my helicopter around in a 360-degree circle. And if there was any enemies within uh, touching distance of that uh, helicopter blade, they would just all instantly die. <laughs> it was pretty funny. Um, definitely an unconventional way of playing with a helicopter and definitely subject to a lot of verbal abuse from my opponents who are like, what the F are you doing, you asshole? Um, And of course, lots of crashes straight into the ground as he's learning to try and pull off this trick. My my poor hapless teammates who uh, (laughs) were hopping in the helicopter with me while I was figuring that out. Um, The other thing that I liked was the they had a really strong... Uh, rock paper scissors dynamic. It felt like uh, with you know if you're if you're piling a vehicle, you'd really have to watch out for either aircraft or um, enemy infantry who have invested uh, their experience points into the anti tank weaponry. So so specifically, the the engineer class in twenty one forty two had a couple of uh, basically specialized not just in repair but also anti tank mm-hmm. and anti vehicle. And there were a, a few different, there were several different weapons uh, that specialized against different types. Like, I think there was, like, a tracking missile, which was really good against aircraft. Yep. And then there's also a, a railgun. Yep. And the railgun uh, demolished everything. Really hard to hit aircraft with it, uh, but really good against stationary targets, like tanks. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. And uh, my, one of my and also so favorites... In general, yeah, in uh, general, I felt like 2142... Uh, Similar to what I liked about Battlefield uh, Bad Company 2, it had a good balance uh, between the infantry play and uh, the vehicle play, uh, which I definitely feel is sometimes lacking in some of the other Battlefield installments. Uh, But it did so on much larger maps in a much more sort of uh, big, epic scale. And they also just had a lot of cool technology. Like, they had mines, that uh, anti-vehicle mines, that would hop up off the ground and, and fly after uh, vehicles that passed too close to them. Uh, those are pretty funny. They had a... They actually had a, a personnel stealth generator. So you could... You'd have to holster your weapon to bring this thing out. And it would make you invisible, but it would make this hilarious high-pitched screeching noise. And uh, if there was some newer players who thought that they were being effective in hiding behind you, uh, I would usually just turn around and see this funny, uh, fuzzy-shaped object and uh, just knife them to death while they're, while they're helpless. Um, and then the other cool thing that I found was the airburst grenades on the assault uh, um, class, because uh, you could target a wall that the enemy was hiding behind. Maybe it's you know about a chest-high wall and they're crouched behind it. And then you could... Uh, aim your rifle at it, um, increase the distance of the airburst by like a meter, and then fire it over the wall, and it would usually just explode above their heads to hilarious effect. Uh, yeah, there's a lot of weapons that changed the dynamic of yeah, there was a lot normal of just, combat. Yeah, there's a lot of cool stuff they made to be, uh, you know, future combat style styled, and they never really brought it back, a lot of those ideas no. in later games. The the other thing that they had that I think eventually went away uh, over time is the c- concept of the commander. So if you're playing this game and for some reason first-person shooters are not as fun to you as real-time strategy, you could switch into the commander seat. And this unique uh, um, class while you're playing 
would uh, be able to park yourself in the middle of combat, uh, completely vulnerable to anyone who happens to come across you, um, and you'd be able to utilize abilities. Now, these abilities are actually, um, you know, they're, they're pretty powerful, but they're also tied to physical objects on a lot of the maps. And so uh, if you have a particularly annoying commander who's using his abilities a bit too effective, you can either find him and blow a hole through his head, or you can attack the equipment that he's using to harass you and uh, take them out. And there's anything from orbital strikes to EMP blasts to UAV uh, drops to dropping supplies uh, for your friends or on an enemy's head if they're... Uh, standing still for far too long and camping. Mm-hmm. So, definitely a wide... Uh, you think you're going to snipe in that bush? <laughs> Fucking supply drop. I'm going to give you all the ammo you could ever need. Dying to a box that fell ammo out of the sky. The, ammo for the rest of your life. <laughs> for, the, for the rest of... For the five seconds of the rest of your life. Yeah. Uh, yeah. The other thing, uh, we didn't quite elaborate on this, but uh, so just going back to the Titan mode, which was a unique mode in 2142 that... As far as I know, never, there's never been another mode like it, really, no. in Battlefield. It, Battlefield 1, there was a mode where you could summon a Zeppelin, which had a li- I think it might have had a little bit similar things where you could like spawn in the Zeppelin and use its guns and shit. Okay, yeah. So the, but, so the not, thing... not, but not quite the same as you go onto it and board it and yeah. start fucking it Yeah, up. So, so the thing about Titan mode um, is that it's kind of like Conquest mode in that there's control points on the map. But the difference being that instead of being tickets, what the control points do is that... Uh, so initially, you cannot board the enemy's Titan. What ha- so what you do is you control the ground-based control points, which are actually missile silos, and those blast out the shield of the enemy Titan. And once you have uh, destroyed the shield on the enemy Titan, then you can board the enemy Titan and uh, destroy it from the inside, which is how you win. And so the cool thing about Titan mode is that it's actually sort of a two-stage mode in a sense of uh, the, first, the first thing that happens is that uh, the teams are competing to control the control points that fire missiles to the enemy Titan. And then after they've taken down the shield, it's this infantry-only uh, skirmish in the enemy Titan uh, where actually the attacking team has to ferry their uh, soldiers up there using aerial transport and very cool dynamic from that mode uh and you actually so it had a very star wars-esque ending in that you had to breach uh these um these shielded corridors take down the shields in the corridor and then proceed to the central generator room uh and blow the crap up out of this generator now even better is as soon as the generator was destroyed, you had only a few seconds to then evacuate this ship um, and successfully jump off of it before it explodes in catastrophic Star Wars fashion, and then you'd get a special achievement for that. So um, definitely could end a lot of the games with a, with a pretty cinematic bang, and it felt pretty great to be part of the boarding party uh, or even landing the killing blow. Mm-hmm. I, I have two knocks against 2142. One personal and one very strange design decision that they made. The personal one is that it unfortunately came out during a time, a period of time where my internet was way too spotty to be playing competitive uh, to be playing online games really. I still yeah. tried, but it would just constantly cut out and yeah. whenever there was ever a commander airstrike, I just couldn't play the game for about 30 seconds. <laughs> yeah, I mean, honestly, 2142 was kind of 
for its time, it was actually really ambitious. Mm-hmm. Um, like uh, the huge maps, the huge player count, um, you know, so many different modes. Like it, it was really, it, at the time, it was the most ambitious Battlefield, I'd say, that had been made. Yeah, well, Battlefield 2, like had all that stuff, but what 2142 added was just like, those fucking airstrikes that were just like, Completely just like stopped a server from running almost. Oh, yeah. <laughs> like, like for me, like I legitimately just couldn't play the game when those were happening. And like, yeah, that's rough. and and I also like had trouble playing the Titan mode too because it's like if your internet cut like cuts out and like fucks up a little bit when you're just on the ground in a building, that's not a big problem. But when you have, but when you're trying to fly a transport with two other people in it up to the enemy Titan and your internet cuts out. Yeah, well, I also, I also <laughs> remember that I also remember that actually the Titan mode was uh, fairly graphically intensive too, because mm-hmm. uh, there's so much uh, draw distance involved in the maps. Yeah, yeah. Because you're all like you're in the air so much on the Titan mode, and the maps are legitimately massive. Mm-hmm. Um, and it really pushed uh, my hardware. When I first bought twenty one forty two, I couldn't play it. I had to upgrade my computer. <laughs> I actually, so I played it on the lowest setting, or what I call potato mode, mm-hmm. and one of the most comical things was that the uh, um, the stealth uh, mechanics in there, um, they didn't make you, they didn't render your, your character model invisible, they had some sort of special effect that they used, and in potato mode, uh, you could quite easily see someone who was using this, oh. and you could also see people hiding in bushes <laughs> or behind things. <laughs> it was really funny, and people would be going, how'd you see me? And I'd be oh, like, like <laughs> playing the potatoes. I remember hear, hearing stories about the first Team Fortress, to where certain video cards like would render the water properly, so you couldn't really see into it that much. <laughs> but older video cards wouldn't, so that you could see through it. So they, or maybe it was the other way around. Oh yeah, so, so these super so, competitive players are getting shitty graphics cards just to like, <laughs> it's like break to, the game. To, to see through the water and be able to pick people up. Yeah, but the second thing that I thought was like really weird about Twenty One Forty Two is that I didn't like the progression as much because it felt like so many of the options that you needed were locked behind the progression. Whereas other Battlefield games, it felt like when you started out, you had a bit, yeah. a bit easier time. Yeah, honestly, that was actually... I would agree with that complaint. Um, especially for some of the classes. Oh, yeah. Like, so. like the engineer in particular, uh, many of the actually good anti-vehicle weapons are relatively high up the unlock list to the point where a low-level engineer in 2142 was basically a handicap because they were just a poor quality... Uh, like yeah. scout or something. No. To comment on that mechanic. There's actually something interesting that I noticed that Battlefield tried to do, but I don't think was very successful. Now, when you kill a player, they drop their kit, and so technically, a low-level engineer can access higher-level engineering gear if they kill another engineer and steal his stuff. But it never felt quite right to me because, it, and in well, it was in always a of intense combat. It was always really hard to actually use that effectively it, it was, was sort of like it was a nice bonus for a low level player every once in a while kind of at random that you really can't rely on yeah and i think the the key to that is because um you yeah, know it's good for getting like refilling your ammo and shit yeah, yeah yeah it was good for that i think part of it is just the sense of personalization that you know yes 100%. uh 
you know, when you're, you've chosen the specific weapons, you're familiar with them, and popping into, you know, it's not as if they're just upgrading your kit with new stuff, it's that you were forced to use their pistol, their rifle, you know, all their equipment, and all of a sudden you're thrust into, uh, you know, what feels like the roulette machine, <laughs> and yeah, about, you hope it's useful. About the only time I ever really uh, felt good about getting someone else's kit was when I was playing Engineer, and before I had unlocked the railgun, I was always happy when I got a kit that had the railgun in it. Yeah. Just because the railgun was my favorite uh, we- anti-tank weapon in that game. It was also my favorite anti-face weapon. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> when you hit people with it, that was very satisfying. Yeah. But ragged all them into the ground. The, 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 one, the one progression tree that made absolutely zero sense was the assault one. <laughs> <laughs> now, because both, every tree had two branching paths. Now, the assault one had a gun that was, like, really powerful close range, but its damage potential fell off pretty quickly. The boss. Yeah. but And the other tree had this, like, more like, I don't know, the DMR and Halo or something like that, where it was, like... The Bauer. Yeah, the more mid-range, long-range <laughs> Uh, gun. That, in, like, almost every situation, because we, these were fairly large maps, was better. Except the one other weird thing about the assault was one of the starting guns was way better than the other one. Like the you, Krylov. You, oh my god! Like, the, whichever faction you were on determined what your like base level kit was before you got any unlocks. And for whatever reason, the guns had different stats. <laughs> yep. And so one of the factions had uh, a gun that was like it had like so little recoil on it. That it was actually like really easy to take people out at long range with it. So it's just like when I was playing, it's like, all right, what faction am I at? I'm in that that one. Okay, I'll use the starting gun rather than this gun I've like spent a bunch of time getting. <laughs> oh, the other yep. faction, shit! I gotta use this gun. It was so weird. Krylov was amazing. <laughs> uh, good times. <sighs> so, guess we'll move on. Uh, my next one's really quick. Uh, because my number four was Advanced Wars Dual Strike, which we had a, a nice Advanced Wars discussion on the last episode. But one thing that I want to just briefly mention was, um, like a week or two ago, me and Alex, I don't know if Sean, you also got this, got a Humble Bundle that had a game called Wargroove in it. Oh, yeah. And uh, which is essentially a spiritual successor to Advanced Wars. Now, I, I haven't... Uh, Start playing it yet? Uh, neither have I. Okay. I, I, it looks. I, I'm excited to try it soon. Yeah. So maybe maybe we'll be able to talk about that next episode or in some in some pre- future episode. For yeah. Sure, future but. content. Make sure you subscribe so you can hear all about Wargroove. Yeah. Look forward to that. Uh, yeah. So we can move on now to Alex. Okay. Cool. So am I number four? Uh, so this is, this is a classic, uh, classic game. If you haven't played this game, I very strongly recommend that you play this game, especially because you can get this game for free. Uh, I am talking about Cave Story. Hell yes. Okay, so, uh, Cave Story, for those of you not initiated, um, is an incredible, uh, side-scrolling, uh, platform shooter and one of the interesting things about cave story is that it it i'm not going to say it's the first indie game ever but it's 
it basically started the indie craze. I'd call it the first modern indie game because you know a lot of er- like the earliest of early games were you know independent games made by one person. Then the yeah, right, the right then you know yeah. industry got bigger. The important games, notable games, were now made made by studios. Whereas Cave Story was yeah, Cave Story was made, made by f- one dude yeah. for, over the course of like five years. Yeah, Cave Story was one of the first massively massively popular games that was an entirely one-man project yeah released in 2004 yeah so um cave story has incredibly tight controls uh it's got great mechanics uh it it is it it has a story like it's it's a it's a i don't want to say it's entirely linear but it's it's mostly linear um it's it's like it's kind of Metroidvania ish, um, but not quite as as yeah, exploratory. It's, yeah, it's more like there's yeah the path's fairly linear, but you can go off the beaten path for uh, like a few secrets and stuff. Yeah. Oh, and there's there's quite a few secrets in the game actually, um, and the game is really really good uh pretty much everything about the game is actually really on point the controls are great uh i think the graphics are really great um mm-hmm. it, it is it is a retro-ish uh style but it does have a uh, very smooth animation um i i would actually recommend uh by the way if you haven't played it uh probably pick up cave story plus uh which has a, a few different options uh if you're interested in buying it uh yeah and... god i think like an updated graphics set if you prefer that yeah it has some updated graphics uh if you prefer uh you can, you can always choose the original a little bit more high fidelity i love the original personally mm-hmm. um yeah it's got a great uh pretty straightforward but like you know engaging story um for those of you who fancy a challenge uh some of the there is a secret ending to the game <laughs> which i'm not going to spoil other than to say that it's so freaking difficult. It's so difficult. I've uh, never beaten it. I I have, I have gotten to the secret final boss. I have gotten, I believe, to the final form of the secret final boss, but I have not beaten the the secret hell. Same. It's it's incredibly difficult. Uh, even getting to the final boss is is basically an accomplishment. Um, I remember uh, there was a forum. We used to frequent, and some madman actually beat the game without getting any health upgrades, and he beat the final secret, the secret final boss without any health upgrades. It's without pretty... any health upgrades, and without a lot of like the uh, weapon upgrades you could get. Yeah, yeah, he pretty he much beat with the default gun. Stuck to the default gun. Like halfway through the game, you can choose to get like. Yeah, there's like, several different... Like a third of the game, you can choose to swap it for one gun, and then later on, you can choose to swap for a different gun if you want. Yeah, there's several... There's uh, Yeah, there's maybe like a half dozen, dozen different guns and weapons. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. Um, a lot of the weapons were, like, really cool. A lot of them were very different, and the... Yeah, pretty, had, pretty much every weapon had a unique feel. Yeah, and it had a, a cool mechanic where uh, defeating... Enemies gave you experience that you could collect for your weapons to level them up. And then when you got hit, you lost experience for those weapons. Uh, so, and they 
they had like three different levels for each weapon that yeah. increased the power and stuff. So it was except for one weapon, the Nemesis. Oh yeah, uh, which is extraordinarily amusing because it's it's backwards. At level one, it's one of the most powerful weapons in the game. At level two, it's it's okay. It's okay. It's not good, but it's okay. And at level three, it's completely useless and fires rubber ducks that I don't even. If they do any damage at all, they do like the absolute minimum. Yeah. So funny. Uh, yeah, very very funny weapon that one. And the, I think that's actually a secret unlock weapon as well. Uh, yeah, you need to. Like, I don't think is that one you have to give up the blade for or something? There. Yeah. There are certain, weapons, there are certain weapons you have to choose which one you want. Yeah. Yeah, and and it's not it, it's you can end up missing them if uh, you don't mm-hmm. if you're not that thorough. Yeah. Um, some some really some really fun bosses and some absolutely incredible music in this game as well. Oh yeah, the music. We didn't even talk about the music yet, but like the music is just like some of the fine some of the finest like early retro chiptune stuff you you could hear. Yeah. Um, really really good music. Yeah. So memorable. I still have Grass Town stuck in my head. Yeah. Earlier we were taking a walk and. Alex had uh, had his ocarina out, and I was actually humming Grass Town in my head. <laughs> Amazing. Yeah. Um, oh, and the... Well, that's just the that, cave story that's not, theme. That's Gra- not Grass Town. That's yeah. the cave story theme. Which is also the main theme. Super good. Uh, and... Oh yeah, and even even if you're not necessarily like interested in playing this game, you should check out the Cave Story Remix project. Which was released pretty soon after the game was. Yeah. Uh, which remixed the track. There's some really good remixes on there. Some really, really good Especially ones. the remix of the Final Boss theme. Never Die. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that was excellent. Excellent. Excellent remix of an excellent song to begin with. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, so Cave Story. Uh, and what I will say, uh, some games, like when you replay them... Especially older games, uh, you know, I'm going to be honest. Some of the games that I love, I, I go back to them and I'm kind of like, oh, this is not as good as I remember. <laughs> um, but Cave Story, I've played Cave Story, prob- I've played it at probably a dozen times. Uh, it, it's so good. And it's one of those games that you can just replay over and over. Especially the other reason I played it uh, so many times was that uh, there are, in fact, some some mods to the game. Uh, oh, really? Uh, there's one in particular where you play as uh, a different character, Curly. Uh, got named Curly Story. <laughs> uh, Curly is uh, a, a sort of a character in the game that you meet maybe a third of the way through. And there's a mod where you play as Curly instead. <laughs> so, yep. Really, really great game. Um, it kickstarted uh, the indie craze, I would say, and is legitimately uh, one of the greatest uh, action platformers of all time. Completely agree with that. What a game. All right. So for my number four on my S tier list, I have, oh man, you guys are going to love this. Eve Online. Oh my! Uh oh! <laughs> I didn't know. Spreadsheet Simulator. Love it. Spreadsheet Simulator. No, no, the no, game. No, no, no. It's a, it's a, it's a criminal enterprise simulator. <laughs> it's, 
this is the we need friends in Russia because time zones simulator. <laughs> so Eve Online is uh, this space-based game that uh, it's a space MMO. It's a space MMO. Um, and it came out in 2003. Yeah. And it still has a huge following. Um, and the game has only gotten bigger since then. Uh, but essentially, you start as, you know, your lowly pilot, piloting a very small ship. Um, and as you progress, your access to new ships and new technologies for your ships uh, ever increases until um, you can potentially man... Titanic ships that make other ones seem like little dwarfs compared okay. to you. Okay. Well, I'm gonna I'm gonna huh, just add a little clarification there. Um, the only way to pilot the biggest ships in the game is to literally be a uh, leading member of uh, a, a large a large clan, which are called corporations in this game. Because the cool thing, the cool thing about Eve Online, is that. Uh, basically everything in the game is player driven. Mm-hmm. Uh, every part you buy for your ship was uh, quote unquote made by another player. Um, the ship parts that were made by other players were made from uh, asteroid rocks that were mined by other players. And uh, all of this actually is accomplished through uh, basically an artificial economy. Uh, which in fact trades I I would argue it's a real economy yeah I would say which in fact trades against real currency at a at a exchange rate Uh, and you're right it is basically a a, a real virtual economy and everything you do in the game is basically with real players if you get in combat most of the combat is against other other players there, there's some, there's some single player content, there, like pirate ship, ship like that. Not much. So back when I, I at least from I played, there was yeah. very little uh, PVE. Like, like pretty, uh, the, uh, like almost everything in the game is PvP in a sense. Um, I don't know. Maybe I, I, I also joined the clan fairly early, so uh, that'll do it. So and we were like out in the outer rim, where <laughs> yes, the outer rim. It's pretty much nothing but piracy. <laughs> Um, so the closer that you are to major centers with a lot of player activity, uh, they actually had the in-game, uh, police, which were, um, uh, NPC ships, however, uh, and should you break the, the peacekeeping laws, uh, in lawful space, uh, these space police will come and absolutely destroy you. Mm -hmm. Now... Other players could sometimes abuse these uh, laws in order to make sure that you die, even in friendly space. Um, so you have to be careful of that. But then, as you travel further and further away from uh, from friendly, known player space, uh, more, the higher chance that uh, you're going to run into piracy, up until the point where you're out in the middle of nowhere. Now, out in the middle of nowhere, there's lots of natural resources, there's some great PvE missions, and then there's just... Um, Deadly uh, pockets of player bases. Um, And lastly, one of the most interesting things was they introduced the concept of wormholes. These wormholes would lead to space that is cut off from the rest of the traversable galaxy, except for by these wormholes, which would pop into existence for a short time and then disappear. Um, And then once you're in wormhole space, there would be wormholes leading to other pockets of wormhole space, uh, 
through which you could get lost in there for quite some time before finally finding somewhere back to normal space. So if you went in there to go do some digging, uh, it could be quite an adventure. Now, for my build, I had uh, I had tried the clan thing. Um, I didn't like being a peon in a giant corporation. It felt a little bit too, too much like hopping out of my day job to do another day job. Uh, so what I did is I researched a few things. I researched stealth technology, so I could, um, rather than being the biggest, beefiest guy around, I could just flat out avoid a lot of fights. And then I learned scanning technology. Mm -hmm. Now, scanning technology was interesting because you actually had to learn fucking geometry uh, in order to be really effective at scanning. Yeah, so just like, if you think that what we are describing sounds cool, keep in mind, everything in this game takes absolutely, incredibly large amounts of time. Uh, and actual work to make, uh, uh, to get anything useful done, like learning geometry or setting up an Excel spreadsheet to calculate or like, how to like trade your stuff to or make money instead even, of even like money. The, even the, how the player progression works is you research these different skills, which take real life time and that, and that takes in the background, but some of these skills take literal weeks yeah, you, you need yeah. to do things in order um, to make your research fast enough that it's viable to complete the research within your human lifetime. Yeah, so, so uh, yeah, I remember one time, uh, I was, this was still pretty early, and I was just starting out, and my ship blew up. Now, the thing is, I had enough money that I could afford to buy parts to rebuild my ship. Now, even though I had all of, even though I had the money, it took me an hour just to buy the parts to reassemble my ship. Uh, because, again, like the parts are sold by actual players at yeah. space, and they put them up at different space stations. And especially because I was a bit... I wasn't in one of the central trading areas, so not every space station had all the parts I need. And so I, I literally... I'm like spending an hour traveling around in my little escape pod just to buy parts so I can rebuild my my very poor, cheap, low-level ship. Well, we, we also started playing this game fairly early, so yep. I, I bet some of that... I bet some of that might be uh, ironed out for new players. Now, I had to guess. No clue. Yeah. What puts this on my favorite list is uh, the shenanigans just before I actually stopped playing this game. Oh my god. Eve has the best stories. Yes. So, um... Finding the best, most satisfying ways to make money took some time... But I decided to actually become essentially, I'm going to call it a reporter, but realistically, I was just a dirty, nasty little snitch. So I'd zip around in my, uh, um, in my stealth ship, and I made an in-game, essentially a blog, and this blog would basically be a report of what ships are uh, sitting in an area. And there was ways that you could actually even find if there was a, 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 a player or um, who is in stealth mode in in a particular area. And so uh, people could pay me in-game currency to look for particular players and keep tabs on them. And what ended up happening was uh, I ended up working for a large like a corporate... Yeah. private eye. Yeah, yes. PI. I was a digital PI. And uh, I ended up working for one major clan. And uh, one day they decided that they were going to have some payment issues, which was unfortunate for them because then I started working for the other side, which was uh, another major uh, player corporation. Um, and at this point, I decided to branch out, and instead of just being a PI, I did some sneaky shit where I essentially told the, the major uh, commanders of these two major clans 
that uh, there was a large hub of undefended ships in each other in, in the same location. And so they both came to this epic location expecting to have no resistance and instead found a fantastic fight. And then I uh, worked with a few other players who we all had salvage ships. And after this epic fight broke down and there was nothing but wreckage, we swooped in there in our stealth salvage ships and sucked up all the cargo and then ran the fuck away before they could kill us. Wow. That's awesome. Just, so. just a war profiteering espionage. Yep. Uh, well, that's awesome. One of the things that I, I absolutely love about EVE Online, unfortunately this was another game that was during the internet dark period, the dark ages for me, so mm. I, I couldn't, uh, just couldn't play it much it like if it was if it was completely free uh i i might have stuck with it but i couldn't justify paying a monthly fee for a game that i couldn't actually play properly yeah <laughs> but yeah. Uh, yeah in theory if you get good enough at the in-game economy you can actually afford yeah. to buy your monthly subscription with in-game currency yeah so but that, you have to get fairly good at it so and because of that that that's why there exists a actual, like, you know, ISK to U.S. dollars conversion rate. Yeah. Where, like... I should mention... that middle, middle man is there. <laughs> so, the biggest ships that you see... Actually, so the biggest battles that you see will regularly make the news. Um, because so much shenanigans goes down. Uh, they actually have a mechanic where if enough players are having a big brawl, they will slow down time up to ten times slower than real time mm -hmm. to allow these uh, battles to happen without crashing the server. Yeah, because here's the, one of the craziest things about it that I was actually just about to bring up is that this is an MMO on one server. Everybody is on the same <laughs> server. Other MMOs, like World of Warcraft, Final Fantasy fourteen, they're sharded over a bunch of different servers so that, you know... Things can run nicely. Eve, no, everything is on the same server because the developers have this insane sense of scope for this game. Yep. <laughs> and uh, so, after the, in the wreckage of these giant battles, um, and, and to give you uh, a sense of scope, one of those big titans might be worth anywhere between two to twelve thousand real-world dollars of resources that was required to build these ships. So and it all goes up in digital smoke. Yep, and digital <laughs> digital, digital salvageable smoke. Yep. And you 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 hope to God that whoever had those ships actually insured it. Yes, that's right. They have insurance for when your ship blows up, and yep. you can buy varying tiers. It's, it's and great. these Titans also take like a really long time to actually manufacture. So you can like if you know where people are ma manufacturing these Titans, you can swoop in on them while they're you know. It made construction and fuck them up real bad. Oh yeah. So apparently, yeah. I'm just looking at. Uh, so, uh, as always, the the largest battle ever is of course not that old. Last July, uh, so the largest battle, according to this article, which was July 2020, had 8,825 players in one battle. Yeah, that's that's unheard of. It, it, like it's crazy. Like, no other game that I know of is even remotely close to the scope of that. 8,000 yeah. players in one multiplayer battle. It's just... It's ridiculous. Um, yeah, and... One of the other cool things that the developers have done is that they've essentially... 
they've just like they've created this framework for the players to interact with, and they've designed it in a way that the the players can do really crazy shit because it's so flexible. Like one of the best stories I've heard about Eve is that there was this one like gigantic uh, corporation that wanted to reroute trade. So they got as many people in the corporation as they could to buy as many like cheap, fast ships as they could and all sent them to this one specific like central choke point, basically, in high-security space. Now, if you remember Sean was talking about how in high-security space, if you do shit that's against the law, the space police will show up and blow you out of the sky. Well, they had so many of these small ships to keep the space police occupied and continue fucking up other, just other regular-ass people that it became a hot zone where regular people couldn't go through there to trade because they'd probably get blown up. Oh, yeah, this was in Gita, right? I think so. And so they had to, like, go, go around. They couldn't trade in this specific hub. Yeah. So basically, (laughs) basically, like, to, to, like, if you, if you, to give you context of what this is like, this is, like, essentially, if a terrorist group basically just dropped down to Wall Street in New York and shut down, like, all of American, like, stock trading through New York, uh, and did so by having so many people there that the police were just overwhelmed. Yeah. That, that's basically what this was like, but in uh, the digital space. Yeah. Also that they could get you to uh, conduct your trades on the Toronto Stock Exchange instead. Yeah, <laughs> and that, that's, that was the entire point. And it, it's, it's great because... A lot of MMOs have safe player spaces that are 100% safe. You can't fuck with people in safe player space. EVE technically has a safe place for the players, but that's only because of the NPC police. And because they had such large numbers distracting the space police, they were able to like get around that like you know safe player space. Yeah. To just like create this chaos that yeah. is unheard again unheard of in yeah. any other MMO. Yeah, well, and, and I think honestly, the reason it's unheard of in any, any other MMO is because there's no other dev team that has committed so strongly to the idea that yes, this is a simulation of a virtual world, and ultimately, it is like an anar. Ultimately, like a, a competitive. Uh, interstellar civilization in space. It's going to be anarchic. Uh, that's just, like, how it would be, right? Uh, you have this, like, anarchic, like, uh, corporate-run, like, vaguely, fairly dystopian universe, actually. Uh, or galaxy, I suppose. Uh, and the developers have committed fully to that. Uh, if you get, like, if there's a massive... Uh, like war scale event like this where they where this corporation of players um commits these like acts that are illegal quote-unquote illegal inside the game it doesn't matter like the devs support that the outcomes of that to remain right like if some and you know if if it's like even if it's somewhat of an exploit um not a hack but like just like abusing the game mechanics their opinion is that that is uh, that is supported, right? Like these players 
worked within the rules uh, to exploit other players, but that is within the mm-hmm. that is within what the developers want to be able to happen yeah. in this the, the, in this in this world. The devs put out a statement after what I was talking about, and they instead of saying like, "Oh, these, these players like they shouldn't be like making this a horrible place for you know people." to be able to, like, trade safely. They were like, fuck yes, look at this. Look at what we've created. This is what our game allows people to do. Yeah, yeah, and I love that. And I think that... That attitude is so crazy. basically no other, like, major MMO where the developer's like, yeah, we made a virtual world where massive, like, crimes can be committed. (laughs) Crimes and fuckery, yeah. Crimes and fuckery can be committed with enough preparation, and mm -hmm. we support it. Like, there's no other MMO I know of where the devs support that. That kind of behavior. I'll end this with a, a very crazy statistic. So, uh, the in-game currency, the ISK, uh, the most expensive ship is worth 500 billion ISK. And uh, to convert that, that uh, in US dollars is 4.1 billion dollars for a single ship. If it were ever to hit the market. Now, if it were hit to, to hit the market, it might literally hit it with a giant nuclear weapon, which uh, they're capable of carrying, that drains all the energy out of <laughs> out yeah. of an area. And so that that's <laughs> kind of like what I was what I was mentioning before, where like, the the absolute largest and most valuable ships in the game uh, are literally so expensive that even an individual in real life like could not buy them. Uh, and so they're pretty much strictly the domain of large uh, corporate warfare. Yeah. And also, they take a long time in-game to actually physically construct, which is why, for example, like the whole thing where Sean is acting as a private eye to detect where ships are, there has actually been um, a lot of espionage-type uh, operations going on where uh, the various corporations try to find out where enemy corporations are building their capital ships because they actually sometimes will try and go and destroy an under-construction ship. Kind of like the plot of uh, Star Wars, right? Like trying to go and blow up the Death Star uh, while it's under construction because if you wait too long, it'll be finished and then they'll have a massive weapon. Mm -hmm. And that's just so cool, right? Yeah. Like that they have this virtual world where you can re- kind of, like, have those events play out. Mm-hmm. I can't think of any other MMO even close. Yeah. That said, it's a massive time sink. Yep. <laughs> yeah. Gotta fly into that deep end, and, and your free time will disappear. Yeah, awesome. Okay, so... My top three games, for me, exists on a different tier than everything else. <laughs> <laughs> uh, like... It's, it's a bit frustrating to, like, when people ask my favorite game, I want to say these three games, because they're just, like, again, yeah, just on another level for me. Uh, and all, all three for different reasons. Now, my number three game is my favorite... Yeah, I think, I think before mm-hmm. you get, get into it, I yeah. think, like, when, you, when you're talking about, like, the greatest game of all time, or the greatest, like, few games, it's really difficult, because you get into some things like, say, genre differences... Or just, like, different, like, very different ways of playing a game where mm-hmm. it's not quite comparable. Like, like the greatest platformer versus the greatest shooter, it's a totally different game. Yeah. And so it's kind of hard to, to judge them against each other. 
you know. And so I think that that definitely for me that plays in to the difficulty in ranking, yeah. uh, like the, the top few games. Yeah. Um, so my number three is my favorite in terms of just objective quality. I would say. And that's the game released in North America as Fire Emblem. Now, this, mm-hmm. is, this is Fire Emblem 7, uh, Blazing Sword. Uh, this is not the one with Roy and not the one with Marth. <laughs> I believe it was the uh, first, first one in North America. It was on the uh, Game Boy Advance? Correct. Yeah, it's it's actually a prequel to Fire Emblem 6, which does have Roy in it. And I... I love a certain period of Fire Emblem games. I'll, we'll go into this on another episode or maybe some solo the, content the, because uh, the pre, I... <laughs> uh, the pre-Waifu simulator era? Yes. Because <laughs> I have a very long rant about Fire Emblem as a series, but to stick with this one and why I love it so much is that it's got some of the tightest gameplay of any strategy game, RPG or otherwise, I've ever played. Um... The Fire Emblem games, basically, you have this army of unique characters with unique, uh, per, like, stat growth and unique classes, uh, and you build them up over this pretty linear story uh, in these battles where usually you're outnumbered, and, you know, it's just, it's pretty stock standard tactical RPG stuff, Um but what makes Fire Emblem 7 so incredible is that I think so many of the maps are so expertly designed. One of my favorite things about the series is its focus on macro objectives and micro objectives. Now, you always have the, your one you know, macro objective of, you know, kill the boss. Protect a civilian. Pr- protect, protect an area. Just route the enemy that you're going towards. But there's all... in most of the maps, there's micro-objectives of there's these treasure chests off to the side, that there's an enemy thief that's going to take them over a certain period of time, so if you want this extra shit, you got to devote some of your troops to go over there. Or a village that might be pillaged. Same, same thing. Or a particular character on the enemy team that you can recruit, so you need to ferry one of your units that can recruit it yeah, over all, there. And, and all these things are usually on a timeline because either that village is going to be destroyed by an enemy or the chest is going to get stolen. And once that thief steals it, you can kill the thief and get it back, but that thief sometimes. is... Sometimes. But that thief is trying to leave the map. Yeah, thieves, thieves are pretty escape. speedy, so um, they can outrun most infantry. Yeah, or yeah, uh, if you're... If you're trying to recruit an enemy character, that enemy character might attack one of your characters that... The, and only die certain, in the counterattack. Yeah, die in the counterattack. Yeah, and um, and and also sometimes you know the character that you want to recruit, the character you need to recruit them, might not be one of the characters that you've been using for a while, so they might be really low level. So that adds an extra layer of you need to you know protect this unit as you ferry them over to this new character that you want to get. And it's this that that's one of the things that has been really lacking in the later Fire Emblem games that I think just makes these just far better strategy games. Like, the tactical gameplay of Fire Emblem, even in the later games, has always been pretty good. But the overall strategy of what you want to do in any of these individual levels, like, these micro-objectives make it so that these levels are interesting. Yeah. Um, yeah, I think I, I 
I definitely recall, because uh, I think the most recent one I played was Awakening, mm-hmm. and it's definitely it's definitely less interesting in the maps than 7. Yeah. Um, and also, one of the other things I like about it is that in a lot of tactical RPGs, you have a pretty small squad of units that you bring into any individual level. And at, compare that to uh, just turn-based strategy games that aren't RPGs generally. Like Advanced Wars, you have a much larger uh, group of units under your control. In Fire Emblem, it's it's a little bit unique in that you have all these unique units, but you also get to bring a fair amount of them onto the battle, battlefield for any individual map. You get to bring, like, you know between 8 to 12 of them every map and, and stuff so that that gives you a lot more flexibility and options in how you approach things to where like in a, a, in another tactics game you might have like five characters so you might bring you know like a tanky character a magic character a character with healing a good movement character and stuff and that doesn't yeah that, yeah, you've that kind has, of You've kind of got like one of each main category of unit, and then you're out of units. Yeah, and yeah. like you need those units to perform their specific tasks. Yeah. To. To. Yeah. To Whereas in Fire Emblem, you can you can go with totally different strategies, right? Yeah. I mean, and have, and have uh, like you know split up your units into bunches that you know might have that same kind of composition, but you're controlling them on multiple fronts, which is yeah. so much more interesting. Yeah, like, one of the things that I was doing a lot uh, with uh, uh, Awakening, because that was just the one I most recently played, uh, I, for some reason I got into this habit of, like, having a very large Pegasus Knight squad, mm-hmm. uh, and then I'd load up the Pegasus Knight squad, uh, and in, in Awakening it has this ability where you can you can group two units together and then switch the, between them. And so I'd load up this Pegasus Knight squad, which has high mobility, uh, really strong against magic users, uh, but but not very good against something like an, a barbarian with an axe and weak to archers. Yeah, and weak and very weak to archery. Uh, but you can almost use it like I, like I was basically using it as sort of like a like a transport, right? Where you just you you drive you drive these these flying Pegasus Knights deep behind the enemy uh, and then kind of switch to the uh, stronger characters that were paired with them and then basically be able to attack the enemy from both in front and behind at the same time. Now, that's an optional strategy. It's not something that I had to do. It's just something I liked doing because I thought it was fun. Yeah. And uh, there's there's other strategies as well. I mean, another thing you could do is just you could load up on on ranged characters, right? Because again, you have you'd still be able to bring like some magic users and some sword users and some uh, like axe users and, and whatnot uh, to uh, take advantage of like the weapon triangle buffs in the game mm-hmm. and uh, just like some some core uh, mechanics like you know having some tanks and stuff like that. But then you have extra choices that you can choose to put. Uh, you can ch- kind of choose the play style of the army that you prefer, and yeah, I definitely feel like a lot of other, a lot of other tactical strategy game, turn-based tactical strategy games that are in the style of of uh, Fire Emblem. They typically you have kind of enough slots to pick 
just your core uh, different classes and then not much else. Mm-hmm. And so definitely the flexibility and customization in Fire Emblem is very, very yeah. cool. Yeah, and you mentioned the weapon triangle. That's something else that's like very, very useful that you have these... Adi- it's very useful for a player when you have that kind of system in a game that you have this at a glance, like rock, rock, paper, scissors aspect to it. To where in most of the games... Uh, swords are good against axes, axes are good against spears, spears are good against swords. So, you know, you have a better chance to hit, and you do a little bit more damage. Now, it's not to say that you can't, you know, put a sword user against a spear user and have success. You can still do that if the units are, you know, if the sword user has better stats and whatnot. But it, again, like, it's a subtle way of hinting towards the player on how they should use their army and, and place their army. Like, if you see, it, like, four axe users in a corner, you can... A lot of the times you could send one speedy sword user to just take care of them because axes, you know, have low accuracy. And so you could just, like, deal with four units with one Yeah, you unit. just, like... If, you, if, if, yeah, you and, drop a Myrmidon yeah. in there, which is a high-speed, high-skill sword user, and they just dodge everything and double-strike the axe users. yeah. And one awesome thing about the uh, player progression is that uh, you have a chance for any particular stat to go up every level, and so that, and a lot of characters will end up, like, being in a certain mold, like, some characters have high speed growth, so they're generally going to be speedy, but sometimes... RNG Jesus just does not look favorably upon you. <laughs> and you have characters that are, you know, generally pretty good units that just like flounder in their stats. Or sometimes you have units that just get completely godly. And other times you get characters that are like the inverse of what they're supposed to be. That happened to me once yeah. where I had this like, there's a character, Hector, who's one of the like main lords of the game that you use throughout pretty much the entire game. And a lot, a lot of uh, levels he's mandatory. Where he's this big burly dude with an axe, high armor, high attack, like one of the most reliable units you can have. Where he didn't gain a single point of strength in 14 levels. And he has like a 60% chance of gaining strength a level. Or something insane. Like 50 or 60%. But he got a ton of speed. So it got to the point where he actually had more speed than strength. Hector? Yeah. Wow. And and that ended up working, like, really cool because he was just very speedy and he still had, like, really good defense, so uh, he wasn't taking much damage from attacks and generally the advantage of high-speed units is that they can, as Alex said, double attack in one round. Where <laughs> So the power didn't matter so much. So the power didn't matter as much and enemies, you know, were only attacking Hector once, so his high defense worked even better, where instead of, you know, taking three damage twice, he was only taking three damage once. So he was even tankier than the normal. So it's cool It's cool shit like that that makes um, each run feel kind of unique. And again, you can't use every character, like, on every run because, you know, you can only bring, you know, eight to twelve p- characters and there's a cast of, like, 36 characters or something. So you kind of have to pick and choose who you want to focus on or else your entire army's going to fall behind. 
So that le that lends the game to a lot of re replayability. I replay this game once every like eighteen months. <laughs> yeah, I, how many, I love how many so. times have you played Fire Emblem Seven? <sighs> I know it's a lot. I've beaten that game probably fifteen plus times. Yeah. And each run can take like twenty five hours. <laughs> yeah, it's a Amazing. long game. Yeah, it's a long it's... game too. Like each map could take like you know half hour. And sometimes you'll fuck up because there's permadeath in the game. So if you're a player like me and a character dies, you say nope, quit, restart the mission. Not nobody dies on my watch. <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah. So. Uh, Dirty, dirty saves coming. <laughs> oh, yeah. It's not, it's not, it's so, I wouldn't call it saves coming because it, you have to, if you want to do that, you have to restart from the very beginning of the map. So, yeah, okay, like, saves fair. coming is something like XCOM, you can choose a save in the middle of a match where it's just like, oh, I have a 40% shot, sh shot chance that I really need to hit, let me create a save here and then if it misses reload the save and do something else yeah. you can't do that I feel like I, yeah just to note on XCOM another really good turn based strategy game uh, XCOM really is better when you don't save scum because mm -hmm. the stakes feel a lot more real yeah and like yeah there's you know there's permadeath in that game but soldiers are expendable in that game <laughs> you yeah. can always get more yeah. except for your favorite soldier that dies on the Third to last mission, I'm like shit. That was my best sniper. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Or going uh, going back, I think uh, there's always like games where like I talked about Dwarf Fortress, and I think the first episode of this miniseries, and mm -hmm. Dwarf Fortress was a game that really does not want you to save scum at all. <laughs> you actually have to physically go in and move files around to do saves coming in that yeah. game. Uh, because it's really against the entire ethos of that game, and it really does uh, ruin it. Because like, it, it just the the fact, like the the facts of like really committing to it, and whatever happens has happened. It really makes certain games uh, enjoyable in the way that the game is. Yeah, and so because. Uh, Fire Emblem Seven is a GBA game. I totally do the same thing. Fire Emblem, though. If someone dies, restart. yeah. Uh, because it's a GBA game, uh, which you know, portable system, limited battery, uh, it actually creates a suspend save after every game action that you do. So even if your battery runs out, you still have a suspend save right where you were. And so, like, you can't, like, you literally can't save scum in in, in a mission because if you like. Do it. Do an action, and like that action um, would cause your unit to die. And you turn the game off and you reload it. Guess what? It'll reload that suspense save in that action, and your character's still gonna die. <laughs> so, yeah, it's beautifully designed game. This reminds me. I cannot, for the life of me, remember the name of this game. But it was turn based. I think it was. It was. Some sort of Greek setting, and if you save scum, the developers built a mechanic where these immortal beings would hunt down your party and kill one of your characters, like wow, in perpetuity, oh. until like until one of them was dead and dragged their soul away, and then you just wouldn't have that character anymore. That's awesome. <laughs> yeah, I remember. I remember this. I can't remember what game it was either, though. <sighs> yeah, yeah, it's gonna bug Sorry. me. 
I always, I always like when devs do that, though. It's right? Cool. <laughs> Even like uh, I, 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 I think, Animal Crossing, yeah. Mr. Resetti. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Mr. Resetti. So it's, it's so funny. Mm-hmm. All right. So I'll go into my number three uh, top game now, which is an otter classic. I'm sure we've all played it. Um, it is probably my favorite platformer of all time, Super Mario World. 2D platformer. Favorite 2D platformer. It's, it's difficult to compare 2D, 3 but I love Super Mario World. Super Mario World is my favorite Mario platformer. Uh, it's got great, great platforming. It's got tight, tight controls. Uh, it's, it's got a really, it's got lovely music. Love the music in Super Mario World. And, you know, the, the, the thing, one of the interesting things I find about Super Mario World, and one of the reasons I think it's in, in some ways, the peak 2D Mario, is because not only does it have really cool items, uh, like the cape, uh, it's got Yoshi, and you can bring Yoshi into every level of the game, which some of the other Mario games don't allow you to do. And it's also got a really cool overworld. This is actually something that I have found sorely lacking in the newer two-dimensional Mario, uh, like side-scrolling Mario games, is that they've, they've made the overworld almost entirely linear. Whereas it's still somewhat linear in Super Mario World. Uh, obviously, there's worlds, and you you go between them. And they're super. And they are super, uh, especially the uh, super star bonus world, which is incredible. Um, super Mario World had my probably some of my favorite bonus levels uh, in the Star World. Really cool. Uh, and then you can also use the Star World. It's interesting because you you can you can unlock access to the bonus world before actually finishing the game. Because the way the bonus world works, you unlock, you unlock, at least if I'm remembering this correctly, <laughs> uh, I think so. I think you can get in there. But, but there's, secret, there's secret entrances in every world into the star world. And you can use the star world as almost like a fast travel across the overworld. And then you, uh, you can go between them after unlocking the various shortcuts into the star world. So, uh, and that just gets into like what one of the things I think that Super Mario World did really right that a lot of other Mario games didn't, or especially newer ones, which is that the overworld is very dynamic and interesting. Um, it, it has branching paths, it has secrets, it has like, secret levels that you might not even unlock if you aren't careful or, or if you don't play the game like enough. Uh, and that's something that I really, I always love that. I always love a game that has these, these secrets and these, these additional paths. And even if some of them are a bit silly and and not necessary, I mean, it's not like you have to, uh, like you're probably going to beat all the, all the various paths eventually. But I, I think it's, it's, it just adds more interest to the game, uh, being able to, uh, to, choose how you kind of go through it mm-hmm. um yeah and, and the, a lot of those levels too like a lot, some of the bonus levels and were almost like 
puzzle platformers instead, and especially the ghost houses. Oh yeah, yeah. The ghost houses in particular are yeah, they're they're puzzly as as fuck. <laughs> uh, some of those ghost houses are really difficult, and I mean, there's I swear there's a ghost house with three exits in that game. <laughs> uh, yeah, there's there's a lot of interesting level design in super mario world uh, so not only is the overworld branching but some of the levels themselves are uh, you could you could call them branching and that you know to get to the alternate exits of a level um uh, requires you know finding a secret path and then following that path to the secret exit uh and i, I just love I, I love stuff like that it's it's really cool um i don't know why they have sort of a they, they've kind of abandoned that in some of the newer ones. Uh, the 2D, like the new Super Mario Bros. games, uh, they're just not as lively in the, you know, in the in the secret secret exits and mm-hmm. branching over world and, and stuff like that. It's they're still fun, but uh, I really do think that Super Mario World is basically the peak yeah. of the 2D Mario. Uh, games yeah i don't know what you guys felt with uh, super mario world i've never played it really yeah did you not have a snes no wait seriously seriously how are we just finding out about this now how <laughs> what yeah i i was uh game boy game boy color and then N64 was my next console after that. I never had the SNES. I did play it a lot of my cousins. Well, damn. But, yep. It looks like you were wrong in the intro to this game, Alex. Not uh, everybody has played this game. I, I guess not. I, oh, I'm shocked. Well, I, I you, might, you might not like what I have to say. I don't like Super Mario World. I, I played know. it. I don't like it. I know you don't like Super Mario <laughs> World. That's why this is, this is going to be an interesting, interesting uh, talk. Yeah, uh, I, I'm far. I vastly prefer Super Mario Bros. Three. Yeah, um, I'm general. I'm actually not that big of a platformer fan in general, um, so that has something to do with it. Uh, I, I don't know. I just didn't like the levels and like like the enemies in Super Mario World. I didn't like as much as the other games. I don't know. Just it, it just didn't didn't strike me as much as like the first three Mario games did. Yeah, I mean, definitely it, it was. It's I I can still see that as it is an incredibly expertly crafted game. Like, don't get me wrong, I think there's a lot of extremely good things about it. And when people you know say it's their favorite platformer or it's their third favorite game, I'm not I'm not shaking my head and thinking, God, what's wrong with this person? They have bad taste. Like. I see, I see where that's coming from. Yeah, but yeah, it definitely, and I think also partly it's it it marked a bit of a, a directional change. Like there were a lot of new things they introduced in Super Mario World. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, I, I I think it's the first game where Yoshi was actually even in it. Uh, there, y- y- Yoshi only existed in the Yoshi's Cookie before this. It, I yeah, think. yeah. Um, and so uh, I love Yoshi. I, I, I don't know something about Yoshi gameplay. I'm just always, yeah. I've always liked it. And you get games got Yoshi. I love it. Yeah. <laughs> but also have the spin jump. 
Yeah, well, and there was cool stuff with Yoshi, too, where, like, you have the different shells, and mm-hmm. he, like, Yoshi has different abilities depending on what kind of Koopa shell he has in his mouth. I swear they've just dropped that entirely. I don't even think that's in other games that have Yoshi, which is really, I don't get it. I don't get why you take such a cool mechanic and just get rid of it. Because, uh, you know, you, you get, like, uh, red shells, you shoot at a red shell, he shoots fire... Blue shell gives you wings to fly. Uh, yellow shell gives you like this ground pound ability, mm-hmm. uh, and they just they just got rid of that entirely. And I'm like, why? It's cool. Um, and and in fact, because it's sort of an optional ability where you don't always have Yoshi, that was one of the ways they added secrets into the game. Was that there were some secrets you could only access with Yoshi with a particular shell in the mouth. Yeah. Um, and it's just that sort of. It's it's so those sort of small, it's those small details that allow you to add these uh, secrets to the game, where you know there's there might be a side path that requires you to bring Yoshi into a level and then uh, get him a blue shell and then fly up to the uh, to the secret right, uh, or maybe a cape. But you know that's the thing. Sometimes the secrets have different ways to get to it too. Which, again, just adds to the sort of interest level of the game and lets you get more from replaying it. Uh, which, in Super Mario World, I found that you tend to be replaying levels sometimes just to uh, either get more of the secret coins or try to unlock a secret exit uh, or just to farm lives. <laughs> and having these subtle uh, details that allow you to experience the level in a different way uh, was really cool. Also, you could get different colors of Yoshis, which, like, a red Yoshi always shoots fire with the fireball, right? And so, uh, just these cool, t- there's these cool touches in World, some of which they they kind of just dropped and didn't bring back, and I don't understand why. Yeah, well, I think at least with the new Super, a lot of the new Super Mario Bros. games, those are meant to, those have they added multiplayer, and so those levels also have to be designed in a way that makes multiplayer viable. And so some of the more puzzly aspects of the levels have to go in that in that circumstance. Yeah, yeah, definitely that's part of it, especially when you're talking about multiplayer levels as, as an option. Um, yeah, because like trying to do puzzly stuff in a multiplayer platforming setting when you all have collision against each other... That's probably going to lead to more frustration than elation. <laughs> yeah, yeah, for sure. And I mean, and oh, that's always going to be a bit of a. That's one thing with Nintendo is that I'd say Nintendo definitely these days is aiming at a broader audience than they were in what nineteen ninety one or whenever that game came out. Yeah. Maybe three nineteen ninety three. I don't remember the date, but it, it's, whenever, it's whenever the SNES was launched. Early early nineties, Nintendo was definitely catering to a different audience than they are today. And I get it, uh, but that's why World, I think, is still, for me, the peak of the 2D Mario series. Mm. Cool. All right, well, on to my number three S-tier game, which is also a Mario game. Okay. Mario Kart 64. Mm. This game was... uh, I mean, I totally disagree on 64 being the best entry in the series, but I love Mario Kart. I would argue it's the worst entry in the series. Really? 
Well, let, let, please expose about how you like it first. <laughs> I don't just watch shit on it immediately. <laughs> all right, so Super Mario 64. Tune wins. in for the best, tune in for the favorite games of all time. This game sucks. <laughs> you know what I'll say? I, I understand, like, to me, the Mario Kart series has evolved strongly. And if I look at the one that I would uh, say was a very close second place, uh, that so, so Mario Kart 64 holds its spot due to the nostalgia and mm-hmm. the experiences that I've had. Yeah. This, the one that came very close second is actually uh, Mario Kart Double Dash. Okay. Because of that fascinating awesome mechanic. But, uh, yeah, so the Mario Kart series, um, Mario Kart specifically, on the N64... There were very few games that brought together a multiplayer experience that um, could bring you back together with your friends again and again and again. Mm-hmm. Not just you know uh, playing the game, but even playing the same circuit, the same battle mode, uh, over and over and over again. Um, and over time, you know... The games would begin with uh, learning the course as well, um, you know, and proceed to uh, then, you know, focusing on the mechanics of just being good at racing, um, and and ended ultimately in finding different cheesy ways to do really funny things. Uh, for example, the shortcuts in Rainbow Run and whatnot. But Rainbow Run. <laughs> Oh, yes. Rainbow, Rainbow Road. Road. Rainbow Road. There we go. I'm, I'm mangling my memories there. Um, yeah, so for me, it was, uh, you know, Mario Kart 64 compared to the other games. You know, you go, well, the gameplay of the other ones has definitely evolved. But okay. In- okay. One thing I just want to say. The one thing I love most about Mario Kart 64 on Rainbow Road, since I just came up, uh you can shortcut like half the map on Rainbow Road in the N64 yeah, game. Yeah, I was saying that. Oh, yep. Hold, wow, I, I too I must, busy plugging in your laptop. I'm, to, uh... I'm too. Yeah, okay. Yeah, I left the room for for a minute there and clearly missed it. But that's amazing. I love that. Yeah, it's so stupid, but see, I love it. See, see, and the, in, in intense moments that connect people. Not like that. And then there would be just moments of exploration. Like, for example, on the Calamari Desert level, uh, trying to go through the train tunnel and getting run over by the train catastrophically. Very fun. Uh, trying to be able to get to that, uh, uh, the item block on the top of the Koopa Island level. Uh, oh, the one you gotta, like, jump through into a cave? Yeah, yeah. Um, seeing if you could uh, try and land on the boat yeah, Mario Kart 64 had some really cool shortcuts and sort of things to just screw around with. Yeah, and I think one of the things that really, like, plays into your point that you were bringing up earlier about how it just, like, you know, brings, you know, your friends together to play this thing is that I'm not the biggest fan of the N64. Uh, I was more of a PlayStation kid, mm-hmm. but what some of the N64 did so so much better is just it had four controller ports. So yeah. so you could have a game like Mario Kart 64 that you, you couldn't really get on something like the PlayStation. 
where even if you had to multi-tap, those things never fucking worked. <laughs> yeah. well, and then anytime, anytime a game requires accessories, it's just much less likely to actually get penetration in the market. Yeah. I mean, technically, the N64 had an adapter to support eight players. As far as I know, only one game actually used it, and it was a weird basketball game <laughs> that you could do four-on-four basketball on the N64. That's crazy. But... You, you, but to do so, you would have had to have this specialized multi-tap for the N64, as well as eight controllers for one single game. Mm. Like, I don't, I don't think I ever actually played that game with eight players, even though it did support it. I don't even remember which game it was anymore. <laughs> yeah. So, with the Mario Kart series, what I found is that the, you know, the innovations that came after that game... They were, they're all cool, and they're all fun, but when I look back, you know, all, all of the themes for the levels um, harken back to mostly Mario Kart 64, and some of them hark back even earlier to the Mario Kart games before that. Uh, I mean, there was only one. Yeah. <laughs> for the um, sense. And uh, it really has stuck with me, you know, sometimes I remember playing with uh, one of my friend's um, and, uh, we were taking a look at my collection of N64 games. I'm like, well, which one do you want to play? And her hand just immediately went to Super Mario 64. And I'm like, oh, this poor girl, she's about to <laughs> suffer the fate of someone who is still really good at this game. And I kicked okay, her out. Okay, so you hard. said Super Mario 64. Not Mario Kart 64. Mario Kart 64. There my go. goodness. <laughs> we just, okay, let's get clean takes so I can edit that in of you saying Mario Kart 64. Mario Kart 64. Awesome. I'm not editing that in. <laughs> yeah, no. <laughs> uh, yeah. Uh, yeah. So, um, yeah, and, and in fact, like, the whole Mario lineup, um, there there was my uh, subconscious, you know, uh, thoughts is Super Mario 64, solid game, sunk, you know. All, of all the games that I've passionately finished... They've all been on the N64, um, and specifically in the Mario series. For example, I finished Super Mario 64, but I never got to finish Banjo-Kazooie. Um, and uh, I finished uh, Mario Party 2. That's right. You can finish the Mario Party game. There's hidden hidden mini-games that you can unlock, and that one I'm sure you guys have tons of memories playing <laughs> with me from some more agonizing than others. Yeah, Mario Party's very fun. I don't think it made any of our lists, but it's definitely a fun game. It was a close contender, but I thought, uh, <laughs> as good as it was, it was also agonizing at times uh, with, with yeah. some of the multiplayer games. <laughs> and the, uh, the ennui from, uh, <laughs> from, from that antagonizing aspect of the game kind of made uh, the Mario Kart one win the cake there. So yeah, that's uh, number three. Cool. So my number two is my favorite game based on nostalgia. And this is Monster Rancher 2. <laughs> Monster Rancher has, pound for pound, bar none, the best gimmick in any video game ever released. And it's a gimmick that does not work anymore. Yeah, because of how trends has changed. Just like, like, because in this game, it's a sort of like monster raising game where 
like some people compared it to Pokemon, but I think that's a horrible comparison. Where you have these monsters and you put them through various drills to raise their stats, send them on specialized training to learn different moves, and then you battle them. But how you get these monsters is you... It's a Monster Rancher 2 is a PlayStation 1 game where you go into the Monster Shrine and you say, okay, I want a new monster. And they're like, okay, open your disc tray. Take Monster Rancher out of your system. Put in a different CD. Close your disc tray. Reads the CD. Okay, open it up. Put Monster Rancher back in. And then it generates a monster based off of a specific um, metadata that's on the CD. So I spent hours sitting on the floor next to my PS1, just swapping CDs, seeing what I would get. And th- this experience, like as a kid, like before the internet, before you knew you could just look up like however many monsters were in the game and what they were and shit, like it's, it was this feeling of like I, I have no idea what's coming next. And so I, I want to literally like rifle through this entire house for every single CD I could find to see what I get out of this thing. And you could combine different monsters as well to, because each monster had a, a main type and a subtype that would, the subtype would influence the, uh, the monster stats. And you would, yeah, just raise these monsters, try to go through all the different tournament uh, tiers from, uh, from E, from E rank all the way up to S rank, and then like this, uh, there was a bunch of secrets to do there. There's a ton of secret monsters in Monster Rancher 2, to where like maybe I don't know 40 percent of the discs that you'll put in will actually say like, hey, you need to unlock this monster first. And so I had a little notebook of discs I I had locked monsters behind that I would write down. Oh, I I need to unlock this monster f- for this disc, so I would keep keep a log of all that stuff. And the amount of just like hidden secrets and stuff were so was so cool to me. And the reason why I'm choosing two out of any of the Monster Rancher games is that it was the most mechanically dense and had a lot of really awesome mechanics that haven't been seen in the series since. Uh, that were a little a little bit arcane and obtuse yeah, so, at times. So but. so just 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 know so many of the games that have made the top five are all games that had unique mechanics in their series. Uh, whether it's Battlefield, Super Mario World, Monster Rancher. This is what people love, okay? Game developers. Bring back old mechanics. Well it's it goes back I think I said on an earlier episode that what or make I, new ones. What I love the thing that I love about games is when they have small mechanics that are that are just interesting and make sense like retroactively. Like it's not necessarily like you would think, oh, this game needs this type of mechanic to yeah. make it more dense and awesome. It's oh, they put in this mechanic that makes the gameplay more dense and more awesome and I, I would have never thought of it, but it totally makes sense. For example, uh, there are a few different subtypes of monsters that have unique moves to them that are based off of the subtype. For example, you, there's a you know pixie class of monsters that are all like magic based, and so if you have a monster with a pixie subtype, uh, a few of them could learn you know a lightning spell that they could use, and that was super cool, or the fact that 
certain uh, monster techniques had a chain to them to where you need to use one move a bunch to unlock the next move in the sequence. And what was interesting about that is uh, you need to use those moves a lot and monsters have limited lifespan before they legit die and are gone. <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, it's kind of like a Tamagotchi. Yeah. Uh, and, like, you get warnings saying, like, oh, your monster's, like, about to croak. Maybe you should... This is a, this is a harsh game. It's, it's very harsh, man. Holy shit. And the death animations, like, almost oh, made wow. me cry. <laughs> um, but, so, because of that, you... You can go and freeze your monsters and then combine them into new monsters. And because your old monsters had, you know, like, good stats and have used all these moves, your new monsters will have, like, you know, some percentage of those increased stats and also retain how often you use moves for tech chains. So you don't have to do that again. You don't have to put them through a ton of battles to learn these new better moves. So it really, like, uh, encouraged you to kind of, like, like horse breeding or something, yeah. just like breed like a thoroughbred. Like, uh, like I raised these parents specifically to make this one awesome child monster instead. That's going to rise through the ranks and going to grant me victory. Yeah, it's funny actually. It makes it like the breeding seems way more necessary than in a game like say Pokemon, where the breeding is basically totally optional. Yeah, you only need breeding for if you want to play ultra competitively. It's not required for the main game. But Monster Rancher Two is fucking hard. It's really difficult. The monsters in the higher tiers of tournaments, like, you need to be on your shit to get monsters that are on the same level. Wow. And as well, um, the game also, I think, supported the largest uh, variety of tactics. Like, you could have, you had monsters that were super high power, but didn't, but were super slow. So they were going to get hit a lot, but you just need to hit your, your opponent with one good move and they'd be knocked the fuck out. Uh, or speed monsters that you just want to dodge everything, get a couple hits in, and wait for time to expire, and then the monster with the most health wins. Or monsters that focused on draining your opponent's willpower, because you needed a certain resource that built up over time to use whatever moves your monsters had, so you just want to drain them of all their resources so they couldn't ever do any move, and literally just... You'd win with, like... You at 100% HP, and your opponent at 95% HP <laughs> after, like, the minute-long battle. <laughs> oh, my God. Because they just stop them from doing anything. And there's something insane, like, 35 different types of main versions of monsters, along with all the subtypes that modify how you might raise them. It had such a breadth of, of play options that it's just so incredible. Yeah, and I think that's that's about all I have to say about that. Yeah, one of the one of the memories I have, and I think this was two, but we were at a friend's house. Oh, this was four, but I remember. Okay, this was story. four, but I mean the concept is the same. Yeah, but we were at a friend's house uh, for an overnight, and we had a monster rancher game. And the thing is, uh, at his house, he had a whole whack of Bollywood movies. Yes. <laughs> and and so with the mechanic of getting a new monster by inserting um, like different discs, we we were like, oh, what are we going to get from these Bollywood movies? And the crazy thing is, like these Bollywood movies just for some reason gave us 
the most ridiculous monsters ever. Yeah, and this one of them gave us this sick like living armor. Yeah, like yellow living armor yeah, guy with a yeah. sword. Yeah, this like, like a gold, hand that was super sick looking. Yeah, just a gold gold living armor guy. Uh, yeah, gold suit. Uh, yeah. I think we had like a cool ghost out of mm-hmm. one of them, um, or something like that. Yeah, and, yeah it's or like, and and those associations that you make between these real life physical discs as the monsters you get from them. Like I remember, part like the second disc on some like shitty compilation of Christmas songs gave me this sick techno scorpion. Yeah. Like that kind of shit was so awesome. That is pretty cool. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Really cool mechanic. Um, it's unfortunate that a mechanic like that doesn't really work at all with digital games, uh, digital downloads and yeah, things and like that. Like the entire like digital nature of everything now means that like the physical thing is hard to acquire, hard to copy if you try trying to do this in a digital space would be a bit more difficult to where like people could just post, you know, whatever, like, you know, text string or something to generate whatever monster you want. It's a bit more difficult. Like, like, like the Game Boy Advance monster rancher games, um, used a password system, um, which just, it, it, that was still fun in a way, but, it just wasn't the same when you could literally, literally go online and look up whatever. Hey, I want this specific monster. Oh, hey, this password gets you it. Like, yeah, right? it really, really kind of lacks the the discovery aspect. I'd mm-hmm. say, you know, yeah, yeah. So, uh, so my number, uh, my number two game. Uh, this is a game that I really I have. I've had a lot of fun with. I've gone to it back over the years. And a uh, bit of an interesting genre, too. So, Worms Armageddon. Yes. Oh, my God. I, I until, until you said that your number one game is probably something that we haven't played, this was my pick, but I thought your number one was going to be. I, I love Worms Armageddon. I was, you know, I was actually debating. I, I thought about putting it in number one because it is an amazing game. <laughs> so, the Worms series is... Uh, it's in, I can't remember what the term for the genre is. Artillery uh, game is artillery, the closest. Yeah. Artil- scorched Earth-like. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Scorched Earth-like or artillery game. Um, so basically the way worms works is that you have a team of worms. And you can, uh, and it's turn-based. And you can move around the map uh, either walking or, well, Squirming. Uh, Squirming. Squirming. uh, Squirming around the map. Uh, And then there's also, there's movement items. And then you you have items, right? Some of them are things like movement items, like you might have a ninja rope or a teleporter or a jetpack or a parachute, things like that uh, to move around. Uh, And then you, and then you have weapons. And the thing about the Worms games is that the weapons are crazy. They are. Uh, (laughs) Like, the, the most basic of weapons in the game is basically a bazooka. Uh, and, the bazoo- and the bazooka is af- uh, affected by... Uh, so you choose the trajectory and power of your weapons, and then they, some of the weapons are affected by wind. Uh, some of them aren't. Like, grenades are not affected by wind. And so your, your goal is to just, uh, atta- uh, attack the other 
other opponents' worms. Um, but one, the other thing about the worms games is that the map you're on is destructible, and all of the weapons uh, affect the terrain in different ways. Some of the weapons, like the bazooka, make a large single hole. Uh, some of the weapons, like say a cluster mine, might blow up and then make a bunch of smaller holes in the map. Other weapons might, um, like a shot, the shotgun, which in <laughs> the shotgun in Worms Armageddon is more like a sniper rifle. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, which is funny. And it, it, it doesn't make a lot, that's more of a precision weapon, actually. Mm-hmm. The, sh- the precision shotgun. <laughs> yeah. And, Such a good variety. And yeah. And then there's also some ridiculous weapons, like a banana. The banana is a weapon... One of the most devastating weapons in the game. The banana is one of the most devastating weapons in the game. Uh, It explodes in a massive explosion that then uh, triggers several other bananas to emerge in random directions. And they also have a bunch of really large explosions. A single banana could take out a quarter of the map. Yeah. On a smaller map. And, like, it's also awkward because the banana, like, bounces like a football. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it bounces like a football, and the bouncing is very unpredictable because of that. Um, there's other weapons. There's, like, there's, there's a lot of weapons in Worms that you're almost, you're more of a danger to yourself than your enemies with a lot of them sometimes. Yeah, there's, there's airstrikes, there's a concrete donkey that falls from the sky and just bounces and, and keeps... <laughs> blowing up in large explosions. Uh, the so best, holy hand grenade. The best weapon. The holy the, hand grenade. The holy hand grenade. Uh, pretty much a joke on that Monty Python skit that just blows up in a very large explosion. Hallelujah. And sings hallelujah. And so the, the fun thing about Worms is that it has a single player campaign, which is sort of cool. But then the multiplayer is really where it was at. Yeah. Uh, the hot seat turn-based multiplayer was some of the most fun I ever had. Uh, and you'd, you'd have some friends over. You'd have, you know, there's just the one computer, and you go to town. You'd be like, all right, you'd boot up Worms. you go, uh, you know, you just you pick how crazy you want to get. Um, maybe you have a more relaxed mode that has more of the normal weapons. Maybe you go crazy with like Armageddon mode. You turn on all of the the busted, broken weapons. The donkey, the, the iron donkey. donkey. Yeah, super sheep, which is a controllable sheep that explodes. You know, <laughs> um, and then uh, another cool mode was you could you could have it where people start with no weapons at all. Because there's also crates that can fall, and you collect new weapons from crates. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then that was kind of cool because there were a lot of interesting modes where you'd put on a lot of uh, mobility weapon, uh, mobility items like the ninja rope, and then oh, fucking ninja rope. All the and then you and then all of the weapons you get you collect from crates, which give you random weapons. Which is a very it's a very chaotic but also fun mode because it's mm-hmm. it's very unpredictable what's going to happen. I, I've never encountered move, a movement option quite like the ninja rope in any other game. Where yeah. it's just like it's equal parts super frustrating, but also super like I don't I, intuitive isn't the right word for it, but you can get a lot of like awesome shit done with this yeah and it's, yep. it's, it's Al- very... alex in particular i remember i i know you're 
like you're known for your crazy ninja rope abilities. Yeah, it's it's really cool. It's really satisfying to have the ninja rope work. work <laughs> Although and really the, funny when it doesn't. The, and and yeah. pretty skill intensive too. It's yeah, difficult to get it to like the highest level. But I mean, if you can whole, use it well, you can like you know. Attach the thing, swing all like, and extend it to swing like around an obstacle. Yeah. Jump. Yeah. So, the, again. so, so I guess we, I didn't quite mention this. It was implied, but being an artillery game, uh, the game is very physics based, right. and yeah. uh, the ninja. Whereas normally you're trying to figure out the angles and power and speed uh, and wind resistance of your weapons, the ninja rope. It's all about how those things affect your worm itself because. With the ninja rope, it's very momentum-based. And, I mean, you can literally, if you get the momentum up, you can fling yourself across the entire map like a cannonball uh, with your character. But, of course, that's very dangerous because you're just as likely to fly off into the ocean and or, kill yourself. Or even or even not, not even just be going so fast that you take fall damage and then your turn ends. Yeah, or, yep. or end up hitting something and getting colliding with fall damage. Maybe landing on a mine that explodes. <laughs> Go straight uh, from zoom to boom. Yeah, so the, the ninja rope's really cool. A uh, bit of a risky movement item when you're trying to go very far very fast. And, and the turns have a time limit, which mm-hmm. is adjustable, so that affects how... How things play out as well, and uh, yeah, I'll say that one of the one of the greatest things about that game, similar to uh, the weapons in Noita, is that the more powerful a weapon is, the more danger it is to you. <laughs> and yeah. There's something quite entertaining about you know you either find or are about to use a most powerful weapon, and like inside you're just sweating internally because you're like, all right, so either I'm about to do something really awesome or I'm about to blow myself up. No. One of the, there was a weapon literally called Armageddon that just rained fiery explosive meteors from the sky that was almost guaranteed to wipe out every single thing on in the level. So one of the, one of the things I like to do was there was a um, an item called the girder, which just placed a small piece of terrain on the map. So what I would do was just like place as many girders as possible until everybody was out of girders and then see who could survive the Armageddon. <laughs> Oh, yeah. yeah, fun times on that one. Yeah, I think there might have even been a, uh, a custom mode that that triggered an Armageddon automatically on a specific turn. Yeah, because sometimes uh, you could set you could set the sudden death to be Armageddon. Yeah, uh, because the sudden death usually was uh, water that raised from the bottom, but I believe there was also an Armageddon version of sudden death mm-hmm. that just triggers Armageddon every turn until uh, once the game reaches a particular. Uh, uh, turn count and so yeah there was literally a mode where armageddon triggers on turn whatever and everyone just has a bunch of girders and blow torches to try and bunker themselves in to not die yeah uh and then also the other thing uh there's so many the customization options in arms armageddon oh yeah there's uh you can name your team members you can set custom voice packs and custom and like this was uh I actually initially played it on PS1, but this was... Worms has mainly been a PC thing. Mainly, uh, yeah. And, but, like, you can even go... so Like, there were a, t- a ton of already custom voice uh, packs that you can use, but you could also, you know, if you knew where to put the set, the WAV files, make your own. Yeah, I had a Futurama 
uh, Futurama one at one point. Um, and there were lots of, they're pretty much custom voice packs for I everything you could think of. I think I had an Arnold Schwarzenegger one. <laughs> yeah, that sounds awesome. That sounds, that sounds hilarious. Um, and so, yeah, you can customize your team with like, you know, voices and hats and gravestones. Uh, and then you can also make custom maps. And some of the custom maps you could make, uh, there was an inbuilt level editor where you could just draw stuff. But then if you knew what you were doing, you could actually take any PNG file and turn it into a custom map. Yeah. <laughs> I actually made a custom map of uh, a Phoenix Wright courtroom that, yeah. you could, that you could just blow up and, and play on, which was really Glorious. silly, but awesome. Yeah. The, the, one of the fun things about that map was that, that there was... Um, there was a slope like Phoenix on Phoenix Wright's like sprite or his like side was that was just like just steep enough that if you like fell onto it you just tumble into the water. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And then countless yeah, hours. There have been some other there there've been other entries in the series since Worms Armageddon, but honestly Worms Armageddon it was the peak. It was the peak. It truly it, even even now it, it has such a uh, it has such a depth of weapons. I mean, there's something like 50 or 60 weapons in the game. Mm-hmm. Um, weirdly, it has, I think, the highest worm count. Like, some of the new... Like, that was really silly. There was a newer one, and then it supported a lower number of worms per team than Armageddon. <laughs> I don't know why. It's stupid. Uh, so um, and uh, the graphics were actually fairly, fairly good, uh, because they're fairly simple. Uh, and very colorful and kind of a, uh, almost cartoon-like. And so the graphics still pretty much hold up with Armageddon, too. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the gameplay is so well... Uh, the, the gameplay in Physics Engine is... I mean, it's, it's, it's not doing anything particularly complicated, but it's very fluid, and it works yeah. really well. It feels right. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it feels perfect for this sort of like arcadey artillery game yeah. that you're that you're playing, and I love Worms Armageddon. Yeah. It's 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 one of the things where like, it's making a sequel to that is almost impossible because you nailed it. It's, it's yeah, it's perfect. Like it, it, yeah. And anything else, anything significant to add to it, like would change it too much. Yeah, Truly. basically. Uh, and then they actually supported the game with some updates for a surprisingly long time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, there was even like a major update to it like 10 years after release on PC or something like that. Um, uh, a lot of those updates uh, did things like remove certain limitations on the game engine mm-hmm. uh, because the technology of computers had advanced to the point, like the worm count was increased at one point. With the up with one of the updates, uh, so you could have more worms on the field at a time because computers ten years after the original release were like a lot more powerful, yeah. uh, and there was no risk of slowdown on on a two D game like that anymore. Yeah. So, uh, especially given the updates the game had over time, it's basically perfect. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, the newer games that are still two D worms games. I mean, they've added some things. Like they've tried to add vehicles, and they've tried to add tur- like castles, and they've tried to add... Uh, one of them added water, which was sl- like water on the stage, which could flow. And Those were all kind of interesting, but none of them 
really yeah. Uh, like if you want to make a game that in like the warm style that used those concepts, try it. Try something that's a bit that's more of a departure and try to make something unique than try and like slam that into a worms game. It just didn't fit. In, yeah, in a lot of cases. Yeah, the only thing that like there weren't like there weren't really there there just wasn't a lot of room for improvement in the formula. Mm-hmm. Um, it's like you say, it, like it's uh, if you wanted to make another game in that style, you have to do something substantially different to make it uh, interesting and not just like a bad clone of the game. Yeah, I think even today, it's it's just so close to perfect that. I play like I'll play like a newer entry in the series, and then like no, I'm just gonna go play Armageddon again. <laughs> I agree. Radical. Yeah. <laughs> Pinnacle gaming. All right. So for my uh, 14th S tier game here in number two position is uh, XCOM Enemy Unknown. Nice. That's the uh, the more recent XCOM. But not the most recent. Yes. So the latest in the series is XCOM 2. And uh, before that well, came... Possibly the XCOM 2 expansion. Actually, it's XCOM Chimera Squad. Is the it's, a sta- one, okay. it's like a standalone expansion, isn't it? It's a, it's, well, I, it's a standalone game. It's, oh, okay. It's very different. But same game. Go on. I think. Anyway. So we are in the, the uh, turn-based strategy genre with XCOM. And... Uh, XCOM is a story of the enormity of probabilities and how screwed you are by uh, <laughs> 95% can't shot. Can't miss. Yeah. So um, the background story behind this is that uh, if you've ever seen Men in Black, essentially you are the Men in Black organization um, and the aliens are here to kill us. And so uh, you are sent scrambling to respond to the very beginnings of this uh, attack by the aliens all the way through to um, organizing and mounting a defense. Now, all along the way, the aliens are rapidly advancing their plans to uh, dominate Earth. And uh, as their uh, presence grows on the Earth and the storyline goes goes on, their technology gets more powerful. And so in order to ensure that uh, humanity is not overwhelmed, you must uh, invest in uh, expanding your base. There's a base building aspect to this game. And what you're going to need to do is expand your base, research new items, and uh, assemble squads of highly disposable people that you (laughs) uh, um, are going to send into combat. And so uh, during the combat, your soldiers may be wounded or even killed. And uh, hopefully you haven't uh, modeled them after yourself or your very best friends because uh, you're going to feel real bad when they get pummeled to death by a giant brutish alien or shot in the face across the <laughs> across the map. Yeah, Which is exactly the... why the game has extensive customization options. So that you can... <laughs> well, the, the, the XCOM 2 had the uh, character pool that might mechanic, be... was, which was brilliant, where yeah. you, you could... Uh, customize a bunch of people before you even start a game, and then they would show up in your army at, like randomly. Absolutely so it's, fantastic. It's, you know what's more fun than sending random soldiers to their death? Sending your friends and family to their death. <laughs> <laughs> yep. So the thing about XCOM is uh, it is insanely hard, even on normal mode. Um, you know, the... the Odds are truly against you in this game, even if they don't look to be. And uh, 
Um, you'll need to use a, a mixture of overall strategy in order to get your base uh, built up and, and your um, fighting forces with a particular uh, way of defending yourself against this alien invasion. But at the same time, you'll also need good tactics because if all your soldiers are dead because of a bad round of combat uh, and the next emergency comes along, you may find yourself in incredible peril. Now, this, uh, this franchise, I think they actually made a board game, an XCOM board game. I've not yet Probably tried it. Probably by this point. Probably, yeah. Uh, it sounds familiar. But uh, So, XCOM Enemy Unknown and its expansion, Enemy Within, which uh, includes um, cyborg enhancements and mutations and a whole bunch of other cool things as humanity. Uh, it's interesting because the theme of that is, you know, humanity and fighting back is now blurring the lines between the sciences that the aliens are doing to us versus what we're doing to ourselves uh, in order to be able to repel this alien invasion. Um, and, yeah, uh, it's, it's actually quite a bit of an older franchise. There's an older XCOM game um, that uh, is its uh, predecessor and uh, is also along the same lines, um, but just, uh, I think it came out in the late 90s? Or was it early 2000s? Uh, I think it was I think early nineties. It was, 90s. It was, I think it was yeah. The original XCOM is very the, old. Yeah, the original like, is quite old. Like it's a, I think it was might have even been a dog's game. Like, I thought it was like Commodore sixty four or something. Yeah, like it's and, super old. Uh, what makes it the the uh, worthy of this place is well, part of it is how much time I've been able to invest in enjoying this game and getting murdered by aliens <laughs> dozens of times. Uh, to finally making it all the way to the final mission, it truly feels like you've conquered an insurmountable task. Now, uh, along the way, uh, some people resort to what they call safe scumming, which is an uh, attempt to prevent the permadeath of one of your beloved characters by basically rewinding the game. Uh, the game has a mode called Iron Man, where you can essentially uh, block them from being able to block yourself from being able to do that if you want the extra challenge and you find yourself unable to resist turning back the hands of time um and uh yeah as as you go along the the other cool thing is you really do feel invested in a lot of your characters uh that you're um building up and you know uh it is a little bit of a sim in that way yeah we were kind of talking about this earlier uh i think that when you have when you have a game like XCOM where you know, there's some time put into it and you kind of use the characters uh, over the course of the campaign and then they have permadeath, it really adds a lot of tension to the game, which I, I think it, it really makes the game kind of uh, come into its own, mm-hmm. uh, I would say. Like, what, when, you, when you're able to just... Uh, you know, restart the mission whenever you want and, and keep trying until you get, like, the perfect kind of RNG uh, shots that actually hit. It, like, that's that's fun, but it, it I think with XCOM, it's a game where really you want to play. You want to play by that. its rules. Yeah. Because its rules are pretty damn good. And, yeah, like, getting invested in the characters that you've, like, built up is just, like, there have been times in missions where, yep, I, one of my characters is downed, but I've completed the objective and just got to get to the evac point. I could leave this guy to die and run to the evac point and make sure that, you know, five of my six soldiers are healthy and ready for the next mission. But fuck, man. 
Yeah, that guy's one of us. I, we gotta go save him, and then maybe lose two more people in the process. <laughs> yeah, that's the thing. Or maybe like, you've just pulled off an amazing rescue mission. It, it could go both ways. Yeah, like the game has these mechanics for like rescuing a down soldier, and you, it's that, it's just that question: like, do you push your luck in trying to rescue him because you might lose more, or you might save that character that you've been leveling up? And are invested in. Yeah. So. And the aliens in turn, they are pretty, like, they are pretty horrific in the abilities that they have and the threats that they pose. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, for example, there's an alien that resembles the aliens from the Aliens franchise, uh, which will attempt to lay eggs in your soldiers, causing them to uh, die catastrophically and spawn new aliens. That's one to definitely watch out for. Yeah. <laughs> um, and then there's the tremendous hulking mutons who uh, are essentially, uh, think Chewbacca, but uh, more reptilian in nature, and they will definitely clobber you, if not blast you from afar with uh, deadly plasma. Um, I would say the most, uh, the, the most annoying and sinister of the enemies is the Thin Man, who uh, in that version of the game spits toxins constantly. And so uh, it can be quite harrowing where, you know, normally games are already close and you have very little health to spare. And then all of a sudden your your soldiers are walking around poisoned and uh, all of a sudden health management becomes an absolute crisis. And you can no longer even bunch your soldiers together uh, to kind of, uh, you know, perform those the tactics that would require them to do that because of the risk of these guys poisoning yeah, you. Yeah, exactly. Like in XCOM, you very... You almost never have enough actions to do what you want to do in a turn. Where like, oh, I need to heal this guy. I need to real like take care of this guy that's on my flank, and I need to reload with this other guy. Like, yes. Yeah. And then the other thing too tough. is that even if you have exactly enough actions, you can be almost guaranteed that some of those, especially the shots, some of those will fail. Some of those shots that you need to make will fail. Yeah. And so you actually have to really uh, make these kind of decisions of, you know, do I commit Do I commit two of my team members to take out this threatening alien, even though only one of them needs to hit to kill it? Um, and so you have this 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 uh question of like do i spread my damage to try and get all of the like kills that i can this turn to protect myself but if i try to do that i'm more likely to miss critical shots versus just focusing the fire on on only one target mm-hmm. um and so there's there's a lot of risk just constantly in and uh in the XCOM games and really like you know pushing your luck is uh like it, it influences the strategy constantly mm-hmm. and another thing to mention about uh replayability as well is uh there's different options that you can customize before you even start the game so for mm-hmm. example if you want your uh you know soldiers performance to actually degrade the more injured they are if you want that extra challenge you can add things that make the game more challenging uh, or if you want your um, uh, if you want the term if you want there to be longer term timers or even things to be slightly easier, there's options that lean in that direction. And then there's just ones that change up the dynamics of the game and make it uh, different and fun. 
Um, yeah. Like, like soldiers gaining completely random stats on level ups rather than like something that's more guided by the class they're in. Or even completely random perks. Yeah. And that can actually be amazing because the perk... So you've got several classes of soldier uh, from, you know, your, your heavy uh, rock, rocket-bearing soldiers to um, your standard uh, assault class to sniper. And I think the other one is... Is it support? Uh, and that game is support, heavy, sniper, assault. And uh, so, yeah, basically, you know, normally when you're building each of these characters up and as they become higher and higher level, you're going to be in a familiar tech tree. Um, and the abilities synergize pretty well, not just uh, between a character's own abilities, but uh, that with his team. And you can actually go in and, and uh, think about the design of what you want your team to do and be able to accomplish and have some pretty action hero feeling combinations where you're able to uh, take care of situations that seem normally deadly or impossible to survive and uh, um, come out victorious. So that's another super cool thing about uh, XCOM. Yeah, and uh, yeah, the progression in the XCOM games can be pretty pretty cool because uh, I mean I haven't played much of. Uh, the first one, but like in XCOM 2, they have a ranger class that just gets... Just, the ranger class just turns into a, a whirlwind of death. <laughs> in XCOM 2, they gave a soldier a sword. That's right. Uh, Aliens and, versus ninjas. Yeah. Well, and there's all these abilities that you can... Like, at first, it's one of the worst classes in the game. Uh, because it's a close-range class, which is really, really dangerous. But then in the higher levels, you know, you get these abilities to, like, do counterattacks and, like, jump between enemies and chain combos together. Yeah, and by the end of the game, bullshit. yeah, by the yeah. end of the game, your your characters feel like they're just, like, practically superheroes. Yeah. Ooh, but the game yeah. is uh, difficult. It's, it's still, it can still go wrong it, at any moment. It still go. It, in because, fact, it goes disastrous. It can go disastrously wrong because you get overconfident. Uh, because yeah. your characters are still very powerful, but they're still very fragile. Yeah, and, like, again, you're not the only people that are progressing. As you go later on, the aliens start getting more powerful versions of their troops, and then suddenly it's just like, oh yeah, this I've got this sniper and this purge, you just uh, pick it off everybody that they can see, and then suddenly you see a berserker come out of the fog of war next to them, and suddenly they're dead. And you're fucked. <laughs> yeah. Or, uh, yeah, another yeah. thing uh, that happened to me once was I had this ranger that was just the backbone of my team because the ranger was so strong because most of the experience was going to the ranger. So uh, the, ranger was a bit, the ranger was a bit overleveled and then got really, really good to the point where the ranger could basically solo the entire map. And I got really overconfident and... Uh, had some bad RNG rolls w with a character that normally would be able to like mow through, you know, a dozen enemies, uh, j just got swarmed and died. And then now I had lost the character that was basically the only reason my team was able to actually beat the maps. <laughs> and my whole campaign fell apart yeah. because I had this. Yeah. I had this one overleveled character I was rely relying on, and then the RNG uh, did not smile upon me in one mm -hmm. mission, and their death like sunk the entire campaign. Yeah. 
one cool thing about XCOM, at least on PC, uh, is there there were a couple pretty sick mods for it. My favorite uh, being Long War. Oh, yeah. Yes. Long War was really good. Yeah, like, because Long War basically doubled the amount of character classes there were. Uh, and the content. Yeah, I, I added, like, a bunch more variations on the enemies and stuff. Uh, and in Long War for XCOM 2, even, like, changed up almost the entire dynamic of how the missions worked in a really, really in-depth and fun way. Yeah. That was at times way too difficult, but even more so than the... If you thought the original game was difficult, Long War is hell. <laughs> but... So fun. Really, really cool stuff. Yeah, I think it doubled the amount of... Uh, um of soldier classes, mm-hmm. and then, uh, oh yeah, so with the expansion, I would definitely throw the expansion in here solidly uh, as a recommendation, um, enemy within. So with that, uh, um, it amped up the danger even further, but uh, with a reward. So for the reward of collecting meld, you had uh, time-based um, loot boxes that would expire if you took too long to get them. And so there'd be the rush to go get these meld boxes, which were pretty great because... Uh, the this meld currency can be used to modify your troops. Mm-hmm. And you can either uh, cybernetically enhance them and turn them into essentially a mixture between uh, Robocop and, uh, and Terminator. <laughs> um, or uh, you can give them genetic enhancements, things like uh, um, skin that turns them invisible, eyes that can see through walls, um, uh, cyber- really enhanced legs that can jump uh, vast distances, so um, it definitely so enemy within made the game feel a little bit easier. But also, you had this crazy uh, cabal of um, conspiracy theorists called Exalt, who would stop at nothing to uh, harass your organization uh, from within, and you weren't quite sure where they were coming from. But what was quite different is that hey, these aren't aliens; these are actually your fellow humans who just so happen to be. Uh, hell-bent on destroying your organization. Mm-hmm. Um, and it added a whole new uh, bend to the game. Yeah. Like I was talking about earlier with Fire Emblem, like something that I think make, makes a like turn-based strategy game truly special in my mind is the uh, addition of micro-objectives like the meld system in XCOM where you know there is again, a risk-reward to that where you're exposing yourself more but for greater reward. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. Okay. That's, uh, that's XCOM, baby. Alright, so we're going to get into the number ones here. Number I you, one. I know y'all have been waiting. So, I don't know about you, but sometimes you play a game, and it's just like a certain chunk of time in your life is just that game. Where... And for me, like, this game, like, it took up, like, six months of my life. Just, like, it was just this game. And, yeah, it's just, like, my favorite game. And, you know, I, it might be the game that I put the most time into. My favorite game is FIFA 20. Because my name's in the credits. No, my favorite game is actually Final Fantasy Tactics. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) You're scaring me there, man. Like, wait, hold on a second. You're scaring me. Yeah, we'll go into my time at at EA in another episode after I 
you know, think think on how many bridges I want to burn. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, Final Fantasy Tactics, it's, for me, the most seminal game I've ever played. It molded my tastes more than anything. Uh, Final Fantasy Tactics is a turn-based RP- strategy RPG uh, for the PS1 that, you know, takes all the... All the cool Final Fantasy, you know, standouts or standbys I've been in, like, so many Final Fantasy games and puts it into this tactical RPG setting. And it's a really challenging game, and the mechanics of it, it's it's so mechanically dense with so many little things that make the game just so feel like there's you can do almost anything. Like, there's a mechanic where if you have a large monster ally on your team, you can use them as a platform to get onto higher surfaces. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and it's like, that's never required. It's, and it, in fact, it's never told to the player, not even the manual. You have to go and, like, deep into the in-game, like, extra tutorial shit if you want to find that out. That's deep in another menu. And... It's just, it's so, it's so cool. And also, like, I initially bought the game because I thought it was an RTS. Because <laughs> on the back it said, like, you know, 20 different types of units to command. And I thought that was, like, 20 different types of units you can build. Yeah. <laughs> instead of the value. But it actually meant, because this game has the job system that has been in other Final Fantasy games. So you had a deep, a deep amount of customization that you could do towards... It, in your party for the roles you wanted to play. And it had this great system of you had your main skill set on whatever class you're in, and then you could give it a sub-skill set from a different class as well as a reaction move, a support move, and a movement ability. And oh, so, that, so so is this like 20 times 20 kind of options here then? Or in in a way where it's just like you can know you could have a thief that also could cast black magic, and its counter ability was it gains speed whenever it gets attacked, and its support ability would be it takes less magic damage, and its movement ability could be it can walk on water. <laughs> you could have you could have Jesus black mage thief. Jesus black mage thief. Yeah, the, com- so the combinations are endless. <laughs> so yeah, we really really getting a lot of different kind of class options there like yeah combinatorial fucking yeah and so that also means that the replayability of this game is incredibly high as well and how you earn the different abilities and the different jobs is also a system that is really cool where every action that you perform successfully like action action not just moving around gives you job points and the job points will level up the job you're in which will give you access to new jobs and also, you spend those job points to get whatever abilities you have. But the thing is, within each class's, each job's ability list, there are zero prerequisites. So if you wanted to, you could grind out the most powerful shit by just spending all of your job points towards that. Just like, cure? Cure 2? Fuck that, I'm going straight for holy. <laughs> and then you find out, oh shit, I don't have enough MP to actually cast this spell. Oh wow. no. <laughs> And it's got to level up more. Mm-hmm. And in terms of game stories, this game has a really, really interesting plot. Like, one of the best plots in 
in any video game to where this, this really like large scope political backstabbing plot between all these different factions and then like you know the the church the religious church that is you know taking advantage of people through this belief in this old god who some people are trying to bring back through the use of these zodiac stones and shit it's got a lot there and the a ton of themes as well between like commoner and noble folk and so many different aspects to it i did say however this game does have flaws and the biggest one to me is that the difficulty the difficulty curve is more like a difficulty seismograph (laughs) to where there are just like random difficulty spikes that are insane in certain spots yeah, I I recall. So I I've played a little bit of Final Fantasy Final Fantasy Tactics, and yeah, I think I gave up on it because it started out pretty normal, and then just yeah, it hit some sort of weird wall. Yeah, <laughs> the weird wall. Yeah, it, uh, there's one section in particular where three of the hardest fights in the entire series are back to back in one location that. It, they're back-to-back in one location after one fairly simple fight to where if you beat the fairly simple fight, it asks you if you want to save your game. And if you do save your game and are perhaps only using one save slot, you are now locked into trying to beat those next three fights. And you can't go back into the world map and grind for levels or get different equipment and shit. So if you're uh, like me, you might lose 15 hours of progress the first time you play that game because <laughs> yeah. you, you don't know about rotating save slots. <laughs> Oh gosh, <laughs> yeah, and the music as well is um, like pretty much every Final Fantasy game is incredible. Uh, it's if you put on the opening th- theme to Final Fantasy Tactics right now, I will get goosebumps. That is guaranteed. Oh yeah, yeah it's such yeah, such an important special game for me that it is one hundred percent deserving of the number one slot. Nice. Dope. Nice. So, uh, so my my favorite game of all time. Funny thing is that, so <laughs> you got Final Fantasy Tactics because you thought it was an RTS. I don't even know how I got this game. I like I it literally just sort of showed up in a box one day. <laughs> I, I think my mom found it at a yard sale or something. And it was in this, like, half-broken jewel case, like the CD, for, like, the PC CD. Half-broken case. Uh, And it just showed up. And I was like, oh, okay, cool. And I look at it, and like, oh, that's a cool spaceship. Um, And so my number one game of all time is Homeworld, Mm -hmm. which is, in my opinion, the greatest single-player RTS campaign ever made. Um... It's incredibly, it's it, it's just incredibly well done. Uh, the art in the game, I love it. Um, the original held up pretty well for a long time, I think, its graphics, because it had these, like, great, uh, I think it was released in 1999. And so it's a space RTS with these beautiful sort of, like, uh, uh, nebula backgrounds and star backgrounds, uh, and then... Your, you've got your 3D ship models. And they have since remastered and re-released the game uh, with uh, higher fidelity graphics. And I, I do 
probably recommend that if you're playing Homeworld today. Um, though they also changed the voiceover, and the original voiceover is way better. Um, oh. Yeah, I hate when they take something that actually, like the, the original VO was actually really well done. Um, and I think it was part of the reason I, I, I liked the game, because like it had just, I don't know, they, they did a good job with the, the story, and uh, just the voice acting was very impactful. Uh, in special, especially like there's certain scenes in the game. Um, to this day, uh, my favorite piece of classical music is uh, Adagio for Strings uh, because of the way they used it in that game. <laughs> and it's a it's a 3D RTS, so I can't I, I don't think I actually mentioned that yet. But um, not a lot of games have tried to make a real time strategy. Uh, game actually function where the units can move in a full three-dimensional uh, like uh, coordinate system, um, but Homeworld does, and it does a good job actually of doing that. It's about it's about the only game <laughs> series that even does it. There's there's been uh, a few games in the series: Homeworld, Homeworld Cataclysm, Homeworld Two, Homeworld Homeworld Two's all, like they're all good. Homeworld Two's really good too, but uh, I liked the campaign in the first one better um and it's got some multiplayer too which is it's pretty good it's pretty interesting but it's a bit weird because uh i i never found that the multiplayer was as engaging as the single player campaign for me uh it's got a really cool campaign too because the the, the campaign, as opposed to a lot of other uh, RTS games, where you know you kind of like build your base every every round and build new units every round. Um, so there's not really base building per se in Homeworld, um, but you have a mothership. If you ever lose the mothership, you're dead. In multiplayer, the mothership, it, like uh, your goal is to actually destroy the enemy mothership and protect your own. Um, in the single player campaign, if your mothership blows up, you just you just that's a that you're old, that's it mm-hmm. like you lose um and you can upgrade the mothership with like researching um you know new upgrades to unlock new ships and new uh upgrades for ships and things like that uh and then the uh, units that you get actually just stay with you throughout the missions so every ship that you build uh in theory, can stay with you for the rest of the campaign. And in fact, you better do that, because did I mention that this game is hard as balls and you have to really go out of your way to make sure you don't lose ships, because there is a fixed amount of resources in the campaign and you actually need to be really careful about managing your your ships. You can repair them and stuff like that too with some repair ships and you can also steal enemy ships, which oh, is very critical. I think it's actually critical uh, because you can steal enemy ships um, in in the campaign, and then now they stay with you through the missions. And uh, that's one of the few ways to actually get an edge in the campaign because uh, you're always going to lose a few ships. And so I, I actually really struggled... Uh, uh, when I was younger, even beating the game because you you don't realize 
Like, you might get to, like, say, mission seven or eight, uh, which is, like, a really... Uh, there's a there's one mission in particular that I was stuck on for a long time. And it's... Uh, and the reason was because I did not have the right ships or I did not have enough of the right ships because I had lost too many of... Um, too many ships earlier in the campaign. And you, you can't you can't do that because then you're just unable to actually beat it because you just do not have enough firepower. Um, and so what I ended up having to do was go back and get a lot better at playing the first few missions <laughs> uh, so that I could actually bring most of my fleet through the campaign without losing too many ships because you just get to a point where you hit a wall where you can't beat a mission because you can't actually, you just don't have enough firepower. That's, so that's so, super interesting. So it's yeah. yeah. So the, the campaign's interesting because it it it's a bit more uh, focused. Yeah, it's a bit more persistent than all than most other RTS campaigns are, and then that really ties together well in with the story and uh, sort of the lore of the game as well. Um, which uh, I don't want to spoil too much, but uh, you're kind of like the last of uh, you're, you're kind of like the the last of the sort of uh, a dying planet sort mm-hmm. of thing, right? And yeah. There's even yeah, there's even this one mission like early on. It's maybe like the third ish mission where you're basically like saving uh, like as many people as you can, and and that's kind of it. That's wow. everybody. Yeah. Um, See, you know what game's good? When it's 22 years old and you still don't want to spoil it. I, I mean, <laughs> yeah. I, the first, yeah. the first few missions, honestly, the the story in Homeworld and just like the, yeah, like there's not a lot of games I that I would say like the story just blew me away and felt very emotionally impactful. Homeworld is one of the few games I'll say that about. It's one of the few game stories where I'm like, this story is really good. I love it. I'm super invested in the story and in like seeing these people succeed, right? Uh, that doesn't happen for me that much with games. So it's very, uh, it's very dear to my heart. Homeworld. I love it. And also, if you... Uh, if you actually manage to beat the game, you get an incredible <laughs> credit song by Yes. What? Holy shit. That, that is one of the few things that you could have said to make people like, I need to play this game. <laughs> <laughs> that sounds amazing. Yeah. Holy shit. Yes. Yes. <laughs> yes. It's funny, I swear I've told you that before. The last time you talked to me about Homeworld was quite a while ago. So it's possible that you did tell me that before and I forgot. <laughs> it's totally possible, yeah. Um, but yeah, uh, if that you also love... might That also might have been before... You, you also might have told me that before, like, yes, got brought back into the public consciousness by, consciousness by JoJo's Bizarre Adventure. That's fair. <laughs> and roundabout. Oh, so. probably would have been before that, yeah. yeah. Uh, but yeah, I... I definitely, if you like RTS games, you owe it to yourself to at least play Homeworld because as a 3D space RTS, there's really nothing else like it. Yeah, there really isn't anything else like it, like the Homeworld games. 
I think there's maybe one other game I've seen that tried to be a 3D RTS, but from what I heard, it was not as good as Homeworld. Because uh, it, it is a bit awkward to try and make a control scheme work for yeah. moving a bunch of units in three dimensions, but they, they do make it work. There is an RTS called Akron, I believe, that's also a 3D RTS, but it's actually a 2D plus time as the third dimension. <laughs> and that game was too complicated for me to wrap my head around. I, I heard about that game. I wanted to try it, but I never did. Akron? Yeah. Yeah, it's it sounded interesting. Like, you had a timeline, and you could, like, go back and send units back in time and forward in time, and they'd appear there as the time wave, like... Got to certain events. It was I. I couldn't wrap my head around it. Oh God, you know, I'm I'm looking at some screenshots, and I think I actually might have played it's like, this. It's like it's like it's like forty chess. I think I did try this, and like it was just really unfortunate because it it was just too weird. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I I, I remember this now. I I, I remember this uh, this user interface. It was really hard to play. Mm -hmm. Like it just it just didn't. I yeah. <laughs> I don't know. I feel like I, there's this game I've seen on Steam, 5D multiplayer chess yeah, with time yeah. travel. <laughs> I kind of, I'm really tempted. I've heard that like it actually is well executed as much as like a concept like that can be well executed, like, because it's just inherently difficult. Yeah. Um, but yeah, Akron was, Akron was a very cool concept uh but yeah i couldn't get into it <laughs> i also felt like even apart from the difficulty of like figuring out the triumph the time travel in the game that the actual like the actual rts mechanics of the game itself weren't very good right that's what i remember mm -hmm. so okay this is so, yeah i'm reading a little bit about akron and it it actually sounds pretty pretty uh pretty fascinating and also mind-boggling. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Homeworld. Homeworld. Cool. Amazing. Yeah. Are you ready for the number one on uh, my S-tier list? <laughs> the most S-tier of S-tier. The most S of S-tier. It's like, it's like a Double May Cry, like S wasn't enough, they had to go to triple S. Yep. For their rankings. This is the triple S game. <laughs> Oh, 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 oh. ah, Halo three. Like the Halo theme, yep. Halo That's three, number one three. game. Oh right. my goodness, that game has my heart and soul. <laughs> <laughs> the amount of fun that we had in every aspect of this game, like in terms of. The memories that were made, how high quality the game was, uh, the uh, the way that it sharpened my my skills, the really funny things that would just happen during a game that we would endlessly you know laugh over, uh, the custom game modes that we built, mm -hmm. uh, Swaktagon that was one of my one of my favorites. Swaktagon. And, uh, yeah, so I don't even know where to begin, but, uh, let me just say, you know, Halo 3, if, uh, you know, if you're a Halo fan, then you already have been playing Halo 1 and 2, and just, you know, the story has now come to this in Halo 3, 
And uh, everything just feels so refined when you start playing it and you feel these differences of how, you know, the game is from, from the first and the second Halos. And, uh, yeah. So you, um, where, do, where do I begin? Like, <laughs> Well, maybe let's start with talking about the campaign. Yes. I think, I think that Halo is one of the best co-op series that has ever been. By far. And Halo 3's campaign, in particular, does stand out to me as being excellent. For sure. For sure. Halo yeah, 3's... You know, Halo... What's interesting about the campaign to me with Halo is that they actually made, made a campaign that you can play solo or multi or co-op, and it works well either way. Mm-hmm. Like, that's rare. To have the, the same maps... In a campaign that you can do alone or with friends, and it feels balanced and well, like designed and fair either way. Like, I, mm-hmm. I, not a lot of other games I can think of like that. Yeah, and uh, a, lot, a lot of really sick moments in that campaign too. Yeah, man, like uh, the ending sequence when you're driving the warthog, like that shit was. Oh. They, they did a similar ending sequence in the first game, but I think the in the third game with just all the platforms disintegrating and falling behind you, it's just like one of the most cinematic things I've ever done in a shooter, for sure. By far. Yeah, I think it just goes ties back into kind of what Sean was saying, where everything in Halo 3 felt very refined by that point. Like, Bungie had pretty much gotten the formula down, and it was executed very well mm-hmm. yeah and I mean everyone loves a good everyone loves a good vehicle segment <laughs> at the end and then uh, and then there was the multiplayer mm-hmm. and so whether you were playing with you know your friends directly on the same console or even just online uh, you know your the games with your friends there were so many different customizations that you could make before you even got into the, the ultimate of customizations which is forge mode so we'll just talk about regular multiplayer, um, or, or rather, you know, we'll start with, yeah. So there's multiplayer with your friends, and, uh, you know, you can save the settings of your favorite modes and uh, and have those on hand to, uh, you know, if, if you guys enjoy something like, you know, having only shotguns and sniper rifles, you can do that. Uh, there was game modes that totally put a twist on the first-person shooter thing, like Infection, um, where uh, almost like a twisted game of tag, um, you, you'll have your opposing team made of quote unquote zombies uh, whose number is ever growing towards the end of the game. Um, to things like capture the flag or uh, king of the hill, um, big open brawls with vehicles all running all over the map, um, and. Uh, so oddball, oddball. Yes, <laughs> yeah. It's Halo's got some of the biggest breadth of game modes that are actually fun to play of of any shooter as well. Like a lot of shooters have have a lot of different game modes that just some of them just fall flat and yeah. stuff. Yeah, there's a lot of shooters where there's like really only a few game modes. Like yeah, where, where it's just like you you play either free for all or team deathmatch in yeah. all shooters. Yeah, or like a game like Battlefield where you play for the conquest or or like Rush or Titan or whatever because those are the modes that Battlefield's good at. 
You don't play Battlefield for team deathmatch. Or free, or God forbid, free for all deathmatch in Battlefield. What a stupid. Like, it's just not the game that excels at that. Yeah. And then, but Halo, yeah, works well in team modes, works well in vehicle modes, works well in free for all modes. Like, it, it really does hit a wide variety of game modes mm-hmm. effectively. And then there was the online matchmaking, and the matchmaking was quite fun. Like, I really amped up my first-person shooter skills at the time uh, by engaging in that matchmaking. (laughs) And uh, with a few of my friends, you know, we learned how to play good together, and then just on my own, um, you know. The skill tree, there was so much diverse ways to become better at the game. You could understand the levels better and and their particular quirks. You could, uh, you know, pick your fighting style and, and, you know, basically every time that you're about to or are currently running into an enemy would be a microcosm of both strategy and tactics overall. Um, And the difference would be between, you know, dying, you know, having a a low kill-death ratio to, you know, um, killing the majority of the opponents that you see to mowing down everybody in a lobby and they have no choice but to bow to the... To the green metallic god that is pounding their shit in constantly. <laughs> so, uh, that's matchmaking. Um, it, although, you know, I, I gotta say is that there's it, there are players who will enjoy and become very good at matchmaking um, with any uh, first-person shooter game. And then there's players who don't find that enjoyable uh, or perhaps um, don't have the requisite mindset uh, required to, to really dive in. For me, I was never a master of those uh, games, but I dove in as far as my skill set would allow me before I started getting diminishing returns. <laughs> um, but uh, the, the thing that kind of put the cherry on the top is truly Forge Mode. And with Forge Mode, uh, it really spawned... I don't think there was many games like that before that that actually... Because I think that's where Red vs. Blue popped out of. Was Halo what? 3's Forge? No, Red vs. No, Blue no, was no, before no. that. Red vs. Blue came from... Uh, I think they were... Were they using Halo CE or just Halo on the Xbox to do it? I, I can't remember, but it was the first Halo. Mm, yeah. Uh, so with Forge Mode, they I, had... Yeah, they might have been using the PC version. I know they switched at one point to using the PC version because they could get some extra effects in. Yeah, um, but with Forge Mode, you could not only design the, the, the rules of this level uh, you know, to your heart's content, but you could actually modify the level itself and create custom scenarios or even entire game modes. Yeah, because like, level creation, like there have been games like as far back. Like, there were games on the Commodore 64 or like Load Runner that, like, that had level creation stuff in it, and even like Excitebike for the NES did. But at a certain point, level creation kind of became a thing of the past, especially in these, like, Halo 3 was the first one to really bring it back into this AAA, super high-budget, glossy title in a way that, you know, it was engaging. Like, I spent a, a fair amount of time in Forge Mode myself just trying to make, like, kind of cool levels to play with. And this wasn't... Something like Little Big Planet, where the creation tools are way more robust, but way more difficult to learn. Like Forge Mode was very, you could very easily create stuff with Forge Mode. They did a really good job with it. Definitely, uh, I remember playing one particular. So in Forge Mode, when you're actually editing things, uh, you 
shrink down into this tiny metallic avatar, um, which can actually be shot at, destroyed, and otherwise killed. Um, and we had entertaining games where uh, one person would be the forge master on each team, and the others would be the ones trying to uh, protect the forge master from being eliminated. And the forge master would be chucking weapons down, you know, <laughs> throwing down vehicles, uh, changing the terrain, you know, adding cover, removing cover, deleting cover, and it really was quite the entertaining. Yeah. It's like exploding barrel here. Okay. <laughs> yep. So yeah. By far one of the uh, greatest games of all time uh, for me, and if not one of the most fun games that I've ever played. Awesome. Yeah, I think, like, I mean, Halo is incredibly popular as a series, and I think what it's always done right is that it's really just solidified, like, pretty much across the board, like, what a console shooter can be. Like, I personally prefer PC, mouse, keyboard for shooters, but uh, Halo is a series that has always been console first, and Bungie really pushed the envelope of what you can do with shooters on a console. And, uh, I mean, even at the time, like, I remember uh, Halo specifically, I mean, Halo was doing things that hadn't been done in shooters on consoles before. And they've always been trying to push that, and it's a very much, like, solid. Just, Halo is just so solid across the board. Like, it mm-hmm. does, like, there's nothing to me individually where Halo's, like, the first to do or the best to do necessarily, but it does everything really well. Like, there's nothing it does really poorly, you know? That's yeah. what I would I would say. Like yeah. it, like like there's a certain minimum standard in everything in Halo that just makes it very just like a robust game. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Um anyway, uh so yeah, that's that's uh that's our that's, that's the list. Wow. All right. And yeah, before we go here, I just kind of want to, you know, if anybody's got some horrible mentions, they would just want to shout out just for a little endorphin hit. Uh, like Age of Mythology and Dawn of War are two RTS games that I love that we yeah. didn't talk oh, about. Yeah, I I love Dawn of War. Yeah. Uh, the first Dawn of War... Uh, specifically, yeah. Specifically. Dawn of War 1 and yeah. its expansions, uh, I'm going to say. Which was a, a more classic kind of straight RTS as opposed... Dawn of War 2 was weird and did this yeah. more tactical thing. Uh, 3, I think, kind of built on that and it wasn't really as good. One... Uh, Gunbound, love me some Gunbound. Oh yeah, oh, Gunbound, yeah. <laughs> good gun. It's like multiplayer online worms a little bit, yeah. yeah. Uh, no, totally I, would I, be a big I'll, time gotcha game these days. <laughs> it was a big time gotcha game. That it was. I, oh, yeah. I don't think we necessarily have to like talk about them too. To talk about our honorable mention too much. We're getting kind of yeah. long in the two. Actually, uh, an honorable mention I do want to watch. Uh, do want to mention there here is uh, a Pokemon Gold. Yeah, we Pokemon did not mention Gold. a single Pokemon game in the top. But I love the Pokemon series, and it was very much influential. Same, for me. it's de- definitely like that's a, that's a number sixteen game for me, one hundred percent. Yeah, yeah. Same thing with uh, Civilization. We didn't. Oh yeah, didn't mention that. But again, well, I think we'll we'll get into a log Civilization talk in a future. Classic. Episode. Yeah, just a great turn-based strategy series with a mass epic scope. Mm-hmm. 
Time Splitters 2. Oh, yeah, that's nice. And, and Gold, GoldenEye as well. GoldenEye yeah. is an absolute classic. Just some real, real and classic Nightfire. console shooters. Nightfire, yeah. Asian Underfire as well. Like, we- yes. Weirdly, there have been some pretty good Bond games. Uh, yeah. Yeah. And then uh, I'm just going to throw Portal in there because I love Portal. Portal's a great game. Portal is a great Portal game. through there. <laughs> what? You're going to end up on the other side of the oh. tier list. Oh, God. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> we mentioned Mario Kart 64, but also Mario Kart DS and Mario Kart Wii are also incredible entries into the franchise. And Mario Party 2. <laughs> <laughs> oh, dear God. Uh, yeah. And... <laughs> oh, and Audio Surf. That's a great game. I love Audio Surf. Audio Surf is wonderful. What was the uh, I probably uh, you know we we probably spent hundreds of hours playing audio surf. Oh yeah, I listened to po- a few podcasts in audio surf a couple times. <laughs> all right, all right, <laughs> we're releasing this on audio surf next week. <laughs> yeah, you download the raw MP3 and throw that bitch in there. Yeah, check out the high scoreboard on audio surf. <laughs> Brilliant. All right, so I think that probably wraps it wraps it up. Um, just want to say thank you to all the listeners who have stuck through uh, the many hours of this favorite game miniseries. Yeah, we really we thought that this list of 15 games each was going to go a lot faster than it did. Li- yeah, maybe, for me a little bit faster, but as, as the games got better, we just needed to talk about them more. Yeah. Uh, and yeah, this like... This is something that I've been wanting to do for a while, just like talk about this this top fifteen. So it feels very cathartic to get it all out there. The list of a lifetime. Lay it all out on the table. Yeah. So thanks for uh, being with us, and we yeah. are going to definitely be bringing you lots more gaming content in the future. So yeah, make sure to like, subscribe. And tune in next time into the Angry Sun Zone. We've got a Twitch channel now, Angry Sun Zone. We've got a YouTube channel, also Angry Sun Zone. Made a Twitter account, you you guessed it, Angry Sun Zone, at Angry Sun Zone. And as always, we got our email address, uh, angrysunzone at outlook.com. So, you know, I'd I'd love to hear um, listeners' uh, favorite games, so... If you want to send those our way, maybe we'll talk about your favorite games in the future episodes. Yeah, yeah. If there's any games that you love, please tell us. And not just don't just tell us what they are, but tell us why you love them. You know, yeah, we, we love to hear. So interesting the, to hear. We love to hear the the, the backstory, right? Yeah, like uh, this this was a real treat for me to hear like you your guys' opinions on your favorite games. So uh, I want more. I want more opinions coming in. Yeah, oh, just, yeah. A, just a opinion cannon aimed at our faces. <laughs> Yeah. Gotta gobble it down. <laughs> it's opinions giving. And with that, Angry Sun Zone signing off. The Angry Sun Zone is setting to rise, I don't know, next week or something. We'll see. <laughs> Till the next time you get a rise out of us. <laughs> <laughs>